This podcast is a proud member of the Lamb Podcasting Network. Find the network at largeassmovieblogs.com. So, um, you know, obviously, it's, uh, tonight's obviously just going to be pretty uh, conversational. Um, right. Just obviously talking about um, kaiju uh, sort of movies in general, just the genre and any other sort of aspects that sort of, uh, with any sort of, uh, sort of similar aspects or giant monster movies or anything like that that you want to throw in there, really. But right. um, really, I was just uh, for just obviously take advantage of having you on the show to just talk about like kaiju and tokusatsu uh, right. sort of like films just as I said, mainly because you're one of the few people out there I know who obviously specializes in these sort of like niche genre. Um, a lot of other sort of critics out there tend to go for the more humorous approach, uh, which kind right. of upsets me in a way. I kind of get very oversensitive, especially when I see people tearing it out to destroy all monsters, which right. is like a Stone Cold classic. It's in my top five and would never be shifted. So when right. I hear them like tearing the shit out of it, I just get like very oversensitive about it. So. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I, I think that's that's kind of what pushed me into uh, doing what I was doing is or what I'm doing now or for the last few decades is I would read these kind of reviews or negative uh, articles or uh, uh, things that slighted the films. And, uh, you know, I, it just it, it spurred me into either seeing something that was factually wrong and sending a letter to the editor uh, to the point where it got it got to uh, uh, me thinking, well, I should start writing about this stuff if all these other people can't, or they're so dismissive. And I found solace in uh, a fanzine that was uh, in, in frequently published uh, here in the states, starting in 1968, and uh, I kept seeing ads for it in the in the 70s as a kid in uh, the pages of Famous Monsters of Filmland magazine. For the Japanese fantasy film journal, edited by a, a guy named Greg Shoemaker, out of Toledo, Ohio, and uh, oh, I gotta send in for that. I gotta send that fifty cents <laughs> with the self-addressed stamp envelope to this guy and 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 get this this thing. And you know, as a kid, you know, you're saving up your allowance and other things happen. And mailing mailing away uh, as a kid. Uh, wasn't really common because, you know, you had to wait so long for something to come back in those days, you know, so, uh, which wasn't that long ago, really. But, uh, uh, you know, finally I got my hands on it and it was a, a, a zine. Uh, ironically enough, I, I got back issues uh, at a local cinema shop uh, here in San Francisco called The Cinema Shop. And uh, I got a, a, my hands on a few issues and it took the genre very seriously. And it was the only uh, journal uh, that actually didn't dismiss these films. Before we obviously get into sort of the into the films themselves, I mean, 
just for your career yourself, I mean, your career at the moment is spanning what three decades now that you've been writing about about these films. Well, it's 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 a it's a little more than that now. You know, Uh, uh, I've been you know I first started appearing on television uh, as a kid before I really even started writing. Um, It's it's kind of a long story, but the Reader's Digest version is. Uh, in the States, we have these things called horror hosts. Uh, we did at one time in, in the 50s, uh, the late 50s through uh, the early eight, early to mid-80s. There's still a couple of hanging on. Local television stations uh, in various uh, localities uh, in, the, in the States would have uh, a package of horror films. And uh, they concocted this idea of putting on an on-air host, which was usually you know, originally like sort of the off-air announcer or off-screen announcer or, uh, you know, weatherman or somebody like that who would dress up, you know, would usually dress up as a vampire or, or some kind of creep. And uh, some of these guys have become so legendary that, you know, they really have stuck with generations uh, of, of Americans and left an impression on their psyche. Locally, uh, when I was growing up, we had a guy named Bob Wilkins who came on as himself. And uh, he didn't wear makeup or costume. He just came on in a suit. He was uh, a real witty guy, very dry humor. And uh, uh, and he would introduce films and he would tell you like it is. You know, he would say, this movie is so bad. It was delivered to Channel 2 in a brown paper package with no return address. You know, things like that. Things like this. But uh, he also knew that there was a following for uh, Godzilla films. Yeah. And he knew that he had a... Um, uh, a younger audience watching uh, were fans of the Godzilla films. And during that period right there in the early to mid seventies, Godzilla was very, very, very huge in the United States. And while there weren't any new films really being released theatrically nationwide between 1972's uh, release of Godzilla versus the smog monster and the 76 release of Godzilla versus Megalon, um, we had local stations, like I said, here in, in, the, in the States, and that had film packages. And Godzilla films and other Japanese monster films garnered the highest ratings. Okay. They would just slap one on. So, for an example, I mean, San, the San Francisco television market uh, back in, them, in those days, it was one of the uh, three top television markets in the United States. And the other two, I believe, were Chicago and uh, New York. And that's where they would test a lot of programming. Um, anyway, so Godzilla films and Japanese monster films were very, very, very popular. Uh, they got huge ratings. And when I was growing up, there would be one or two, if not more, on per week on television as I was growing up. Yeah. Uh, as well as the programmers at certain stations put together these things like Monster Week. You know, every day at 3.30, there's a different Japanese monster movie or a different horror film. You couldn't turn around without knocking them over or tripping over a giant monster. You know, you really couldn't. Um, so Bob Wilkins uh, would uh, did a reach out to some fans, and he said, if you have any news on upcoming Godzilla movies, send them into the station, we'll pass them along to the fans. Well, I was already uh, going to a, uh, a neighborhood in San Francisco called Japantown at that time, which had bookstores and toy stores, and I was already picking up, you know, merchandise from Japan at a very young age. And I had a few magazines that had photographs and uh, photo spreads on on some of the latest films in Japan. So this was about 1975, late 75, maybe early 76, perhaps. 
And so I had I had some stuff material I put together. I wrote a letter, and I already been incessantly sending letters and postcards to to Bob Wilkins uh, to the show that he hosted called Creature Features, because he was sort of a hero to all of us kids, uh, all the kids in the Bay Area, San Francisco Bay Area. Yeah. But he did this outreach, and he was doing a public appearance at a movie theater. Ironically enough, for a Japanese animated film called Jack and the Beanstalk. So I went solely just because he was making this personal appearance. And there must have been, and it was in my neighborhood as well, and there must have been 400, at least 400 kids that showed up to meet him. And uh, in the middle of this, I think I, you know, my mom kind of pushed me. <laughs> you know, Here, you got the envelope. You got everything in there. I had this manila envelope. And I went over and I said, you wanted some information on Godzilla? It's all in here. <laughs> I I just love the idea of this kid just like handing this this horror host this like envelope of his little Godzilla rantings and uh, and information there. I love that. Right, idea. right. Like I stuck a couple of issues of a magazine. I did an annotated letter in there, page sixty four. You know, <laughs> and uh, I think I had this I had this fold out poster uh, from a Japanese magazine for the terror of Mechagodzilla, uh, which it you know was only months old at the time. And I cut that out of the magazine because it was a fold-out page. Okay. Like a, like a Playboy centerfold, but of <laughs> glorious Japanese monsters. So, so I cut that out, and I put it in the envelope as well. And, uh, I, and at, the end of the, uh, at the end of my letter, my cover letter, <laughs> at the end of the cover letter I wrote, uh, you know, when you're finished with this stuff, please return it to me. Thank you. Oh, yes, you actually asked for it to be returned as well. I mean, right, that's... right. Because I was like, I can't let this stuff go. You know, things like photocopiers were expensive in those days. You couldn't, you know, we didn't have all the stuff we have now, you know, obviously. So it was, it was very, you know, it was analog. And you, if you had it, you only had it one copy and that was it. You know, if that was destroyed, it was gone. So, uh, uh, you know, I wanted the stuff back. So several months goes by and most kids, if you would hear, it would be this story of the kid who trusted his idol and then was crushed. You know, by the idol, it was like, you know, it's sort of like sitting Charlie in the chocolate factory with with Willy Wonka going, you get nothing. You know, so, uh, I'm sitting there, you know, waiting and I, you know, waiting for to hear back from him. And I, I had trust in Bob Wilkins. I was like, he'll get back to me. No yeah. worries. So one day I came home from school and it must have been, you know, this must be about May of 76. So, you know, uh, the time frame is, you know, I don't know, several months went, go, went by maybe. Uh, and, uh, so I come home from school one day and my mother tells me, uh, Bob Wilkins called, uh, he wants you to call him back at the station. So after I was done doing somersaults and, and springing off the wall, uh, and, uh, and I stopped shaking and screaming, uh, I called Bob Wilkins and, uh, he said, well, Hey, there's a new movie coming out in a couple of months, uh, you know, called Godzilla versus Megalon. You seem to know a lot about Godzilla. Do you want to come on the show and talk about Godzilla? So here I am, you know, teenage, you know, you know, fresh-faced teenager, you know. And I go on this station, I go on this show uh, that you know they've got you know at least a million viewers, uh, and uh, I was extremely nervous, you know. But I try to keep myself composed, and uh, you know, uh, he made me feel really at ease. And I brought a bunch of stuff. I brought some. Godzilla figures. I had some original Bullmark stuff that I was able to buy in Japantown, and 
you know, had a little display stuff and yeah. they ran the trailer. It was the first time I saw the trailer. It was before it went, you know, all over the air. You know, we talked about this stuff and then, uh, you know, I thought, well, wow, that was great. I got to be on Creature Features. Wow. I never imagined I would, would have been on Creature Features and, and, and you know, and, and had been interviewed by Bob Wilkins. Yeah, I just love the idea that you already have these local TV hosts and especially I know it's in the States we caught some late night TV and it was like, right. I don't remember who the host was, but I just remember he was a vampire and I'd right. been amused by the fact he was a vampire introducing a kung fu movie. Right. I'm thinking, <laughs> we do not have this here in the UK because when we showed Godzilla movies, it was like late night TV fodder. Right. Um, right. That it was just something to fill, fill the schedules that late at night because obviously they had nothing else to put there. And if you were lucky, they'd run a season and they'd have like a little introduction by one of like uh, the cool film guys over here. There used to be a show over here called Vids, uh, presented by these right. two Scottish guys. And right. they would do these little introductions. But one of them would do it like really serious. Never was. I don't know if he was like strung out on drugs or what, but he seemed to be really out there with his description of what was going on in these films. But right. they would do like the Jackie Chan season, they would do like the, the Godzilla season, and it right. would be through those that I would obviously get this exposure. We didn't have like you guys over in the States have where you'd have like the TCM Monster Marathon or anything like that. Right. Of, like you had to look for the paper and you had to like look for like one o'clock, two o'clock in the morning. Right. And like learn how to program your VCR because Right. There's no way you can obviously sneak down to, to watch these things. Right. You have to figure out the DVCR. And when you have that wonderful day where you actually figure out how to do it, and like suddenly this whole <laughs> world of possibilities opens up to you. Right. So I love the it, fact that there's a host there dedicated to promoting and encouraging these young minds to get into monster movies and cult cinema like this. Yeah, absolutely. Bob Wilkins was one of those guys who did that. Uh and that really extended to uh, a lot of people who who uh, went on to be uh, guests on his show, who he would see that they had some kind of talent. And he originally started off as an ad guy, uh, advertising guy, and uh, was really known, like I said earlier, for his quick wit and dry humor. Uh, so you know, he started emceeing like all of you know whatever television station he was working at. You know, hosting their testimonial dinners and you know the, uh, the you know the, the things like this, and he did encourage uh, you know a couple of people got really good careers out of appearing on on Creature Features with Bob Wilkins because he would do things like you know say hey you're really talented you know I have a couple contacts let me call a couple people and uh, one of them became a cinematographer in in Hollywood. You know, because of Bob Wilkins, you know, yeah. they submitted like an amateur film, you know, brought an amateur film to show on the on the program, you know. So so Bob called me back and um, said, would you like to come on again? And, uh, you know, or, you know, would you like to, you know, give me some notes, you know. And uh, and in fact, I guess one of the biggest guys that uh, that he had, a, he had a guy that would write in and tell him, you know, give him more information on some of the horror films that he, he was running and. uh Bob eventually hired him on as his fact his fact checker, you know, uh, and uh, that guy uh, uh, became a producer on the show, uh, and then he became the film critic for the station, and then had this long career, you know, being a local uh, film critic, just for writing a letter to Bob Wilkins and saying, "Oh, you got a fact wrong on the creeping terror." <laughs> You know, uh, and uh, and the, and Bob did the same for me, and it wasn't like I was a special person because he did that for a lot of people. But he would see talent in certain people, and then want to uh, 
help them along. Uh, and so I started appearing more frequently. He, he took a trip to Hawaii one year in the mid-70s when they had this explosion of tokusatsu shows on, on uh, local Hawaiian television with uh, you know, uh, a show called Kikaida. Uh, superhero show and then the next thing you know there's dozens of these superhero shows on local television in Hawaii uh, primarily on KIKU TV 13 and they had uh, you know were English subtitled and kids of all ages and all ethnicities were into these shows and there was a it was sort of like the bat craze in the United States in the 60s that was happening in Hawaii with Japanese superheroes and um Bob Wilkins was on vacation. He read an article also in Time Magazine did coverage on the explosion of popularity of Kikaida in 1975. And Bob thought, well, I could work this into a TV show and bring back the idea of the, the kids, the TV uh, early afternoon kids host. So he created this thing called Captain Cosmic. And uh, Bob became Captain Cosmic. He put on a silly outfit and a helmet. And, uh, and, uh, he started off by programming Japanese TV shows. Uh, uh, you know, the first thing we got was Flash Gordon because he, 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 was, he was going for like a half-hour serials. And he approached a lot of these Japanese uh, networks or the people who were running these things in Hawaii. And it was sort of this big runaround. And then it became too expensive. You know, he was trying to get, for an example, Super Eye Productions Ultra 7, which was showing in Hawaii in 1975, dubbed in English. Okay. And he contacted Subaraya Productions, and they said, we want $10,000 an episode. So that was like, you know, for 49 episodes, 48 episodes, that's kind of a hefty sum, especially in 1970, you know, 77. And so, you know, Bob turned to me and said, what can I get? What, what is available? Uh, you know, he had, he had uh, managed to uh, get a hold of the Space Giants, uh, which is uh, uh, Ambassador Magma the Tezuka live action show. So I wrote a list out and, uh, of, of shows and it was, you know, just everything I could think of that was like live action, half hour syndicated program, uh, that was available. Uh, and mind you at the time, I'm still a teenager and I'm going Ultraman, United artists, television, yeah. Johnny Sacco and his flying robot, American international television, and even like, uh, you know, Thunderbirds, ITC, Captain Scarlet. I wrote all that down. I and, loved, um, yeah, I loved all the Thunderbirds, Captain Scarlet, and Stingray. Yes. And myself were like the big freaks. I, I mean, over here, again, we didn't have the distributions. We didn't get the Japanese uh, shows, uh, things right. like Ultraman, Ultra 7. Any of that never came over. And it's been now as an adult getting right. to discover these shows because they just didn't have the distribution over here. I think right. the closest we had was when Power Rangers first came over here. So that's what, 95? Um, right. And obviously kicked it off. And at that point, I'm a big Godzilla fan. So I recognize, like, you know, men in rubber suits destroying what seems to look very similar to down, uh, down uh, town Tokyo. Right. Uh, of course, being supposedly Angel Grove. And right. Of course, it was like, oh, my God, this is absolutely great. But before then, we obviously, and I, I would probably say around the same time, uh, Jerry Anderson Productions, as in Stingray, Captain Scarlet, and uh, Thunderbirds, loving the model works it was so similar to the what i was seeing right. in the kaiju movies right um and this is a guy who didn't particularly like puppets or model work he was just basically trying to find a way to get into doing feature films right but if there's the the level of detail that he was put into these these productions and stuff he was like making little mini movies and right. showing the same love and care that you obviously see in like the kaiju movies and things like 
um, Ultra Q. In the, in the first episode, they're in a where it's like in a quarry, and you see like the little details and like the train trucks and like right. all got the uh, like the rubble and they've got like logs and stuff. And it's like the American a lot of the American production stuff wouldn't show that details. It'd just be like some standard model kit that they bought down you know the model shop. They wouldn't have right. like the level of attention that you obviously get in these shows. So it's right. wonderful, obviously, going back and for obviously Shout Factory in particular, who've been releasing these uh these things it's been well worth importing them but oh yeah and it's it's that level of detail that you know there was a mutual appreciation society between the people that worked at uh at Subaraya Productions working on Ultraman and Ultra 7 they were all fans of Thunderbirds and, and Stingray and yeah. and 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 Scarlet and uh and beyond and uh there's even a couple of episodes of uh Ultra 7 that have visual uh tributes uh to Captain Scarlet Oh really? There's one episode where uh, now you know the, tran- the 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 famous transitional in Captain Scarlet from scene to scene, bum 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 bum, yes. and the cutaway, you know, it it cuts back and forth. <laughs> they did they did that in Ultra Seven, but they did bum 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 bum. <laughs> There's one or two episodes that have that, and that's a that's an exact visual uh, uh, tribute uh, homage to uh, Captain Captain Scarlet. So there was this really intense, and the Ultra Hawks in Ultra Seven were definitely, uh, you know, inspired by uh, the Thunderbirds. So they were—that was another homage from them. They said, "Wow, the Thunderbirds are really cool. Let's do our own kind of Thunderbirds," and that became the the uh, Ultra Hawks in Ultra Seven. I mean, do you remember why it was that this sort of love of uh, Kaiju and uh, these sort of shows and this sort of cinema really sort of? came from was there like any one film that sort of sparks that uh, initial interest well you know historically you have to kind of go back and look at uh the first american television broadcast of uh godzilla king of the monsters uh the 1956 uh, uh american version of oh right so Blair Cup. right so that that was uh that went got to american television on a station in New York called WOR Channel 9, which is kind of a famous station for people on the East Coast of the, of the States. And they ran this movie. And back in those days, in the, in the late 50s and early 60s, they would do something like, we're, we've got the rights to this big movie, and we're going to show it all week. We're going to show it Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday night at 6 p.m. So everybody's able to catch it. Well, Godzilla broke all the television records. It, it smashed all the yeah. ratings, all the, all the ratings. And, um, and so that set a precedent where uh, not only was the first film a hit in theaters and, you know, more followed soon after, that it was, they realized this stuff was also viable for television. And in fact, when United Artists Television, uh, a few years later, because I think that was like 19, maybe 1960 that, uh, that WOR had Godzilla uh, on uh, off the top of my head. But it was just a few years later when when uh, United Artists was promoting Ultraman uh, that in, even in their press kit they mentioned that Godzilla King of the Monsters was the biggest sweep ever on WOR nine uh, ratings wise, and this is made by the same producer, so it's obviously going to be a hit on your local station. And so that was that was rung about a lot. Uh, a lot of these films played in, you know, theaters in the United States as they did in the UK. But, you know, I think the proliferation of them in the estates was larger. Um, 
And uh, they became hits with a lot of kids. So there were kids growing up in the 50s uh, that fell in love with these movies from the theatrical showings. And then you have later generations, such as myself, that, that started catching these things on TV, you know. Uh, and, uh, and so it was sort of the second wave of, uh, of crazy Japanese monster fans. So it was that proliferation of, of the, or should I say, like this, this uh, deluge of Japanese monster movies and, and programming on local stations across the U.S. that uh, really stirred up uh, a whole fandom base. And I think that's really part of it is, is all these showings on television constantly of these movies. Yeah, it's, it's always interesting when I hear fans obviously talk about when they talk about the initial Godzilla experience being the original Godzilla or Godzilla carrying the monsters, Eva Carr, right. and it, they fold it through because obviously with the Shadow Sea series, I mean this runs from 1954 through to 1975, right. and as they go on, they become more about the monster size smackdowns. They become a little more cheesy, a little more ropey. And for myself, I mean, I, the first one I ever saw was uh, Ever a Horror of the Deep, or is is released right. in the states Godzilla versus the Sea Monster. Um, which I always thought was an awful title. Yes. Um, and that's why I just constantly refer to it as Ever a Horror of the Deep. But I remember my uncle showing, showing me this, showing it is like, you know, you have to watch this film. And I went into it not knowing it was Godzilla or anything about Godzilla and just enjoying the fact it's, you know, this dinosaur, he goes and destroys things. And there's this great story. And we obviously have Mothra, this giant moth and a giant right. crab. You know, all these things that I wasn't getting in any other sort of cinema perhaps outside of the right. fantasy sort of sorcery things with like things like Kroll which is obviously right. and Willow which would obviously like give right. me that monster kick so it was great having like films where the focus was on these giant monsters and they were like fighting and destroying Tokyo and I love the fact that in your mind you can think because they're showing a weekly basis so in your mind that Tokyo destroyed it and they rebuild it in a week so right. <laughs> these really proactive uh, citizens of Tokyo but I often like wonder. I mean, how do, was it going in and watching the original Godzilla movie, which is a very straight face and serious film? Right. I mean, in that film, we have that very haunting scene of the mother holding the children and saying, right. "Don't worry, we'll be with our fa- with your father soon." Right. Uh, like the scenes of the field hospital, and it, it's not campy or rotatory. It's a very serious movie. And then obviously we get onto the late movies. I mean, even from the second film, Godzilla raids again. Uh, which also gave us the introduction of the greatest Keiju monster, uh, Anglers. Right. Um, and it's starting to get a little more ropey, a little more cheesy. Um, how, I mean, how did you find it, obviously, with them getting more sort of lighthearted as they went on within this well, you period? Well, interesting thing coming into sort of like the middle of all this. I, can rem- I have memories that go back to even, you know, when I was about maybe three, three years old. And I remember, you know, uh, seeing smidgens of things on TV. I remember a scene from one movie that stuck in my head, and that happened to be like Gorath, which is a 1962 film by uh, Ishiro Honda. Uh, and, uh, you know, things like Mothra yeah. popping up on TV. But, you know, I didn't sit there and, and I don't remember them as a whole. So when you, you know, when you get a little older and your memory starts getting, you know, uh, uh, more in-depth, it's, it's, you know, uh, that's when you start, these films start really inhabiting your mind. Because as a child... I can even remember seeing clips of uh, where I was watching the whole film, but all I can remember is one scene from, you know, uh, Revenge of the Creature, you know, uh, and when he's coming, he's running, he's coming at the camera, you know, things that stuck in my mind, just images, you know, and 
you know, I was lucky that my mother and her uh, twin sister, my aunt, would take me. They loved horror films. And they would take me to the drive-in theater. And uh, when I was a baby, but you didn't, you didn't have a babysitter. You know, you'd put, you'd put the kid in the car. <laughs> you'd go to the drive-in and let the kid fall asleep or whatever the kid was going to do. And you weren't like going into a, what we call a hardtop theater uh, cinema where, where uh, you know, the, a crying child or, you know, a child that's not into watching movies, uh, you know, is, might disturb the other people in the audience. So, you know, you just take them to the drive-in. So I, I, a lot of early memories are drive-in, like seeing my mom told me one of the first movies that I, I saw as a kid was Godzilla vs. The Thing, Mothra vs. Godzilla 1964. Yeah. I don't have any recollection of it whatsoever. I have and to the, say that audiences were probably disappointed by what that poster promised to find out there was a giant moth that Godzilla was facing off eventually. So. Well, the interesting thing was that Mothra, uh, you know, uh, was re- the original Mothra film, 61, was released in the United States in 1962 by Columbia Pictures. And it was a phenomenally huge hit. Yeah. So if you went in and you're going, what's this thing, you know, and then it turns out to be Mothra, you'd go like, you'd already be familiar with who Mothra was anyway. Right, okay. But uh, I'm sure there was like half the people that went went cool and half the other people went, yeah, you know. But uh, yeah, Mothra was like a phenomenally, uh, you know, big hit in, in the in the U.S. And I remember when I I sort of became this <laughs> this kind of a character who would hang out at the cinema shop, you know, hang out at the, any movie poster shop in town. You know, I'd walk in the door. We don't have any new Godzilla stuff this week, Augie. <laughs> okay, well, can I look through the stuff that's already here that I've already seen a hundred times? Let me flip through it again. Yeah. But, you know, you would sit around and you would start talking to people. You know, it was like uh, some people had the same experience. I like hang out in the comic book shop, you know, uh, and, uh, you know, the equivalent, the equivalent of the nerd equivalent of the barber shop, you know, and, uh, and, uh, and and I would meet these people would go like, I saw Mothra when it first came out, you know, which seemed like ancient history to me at the time. And now it is ancient history. But, uh, you know, they would, I would go, what was it like? <laughs> what was it like to see Mothra when it first came out? They go, the line was down the street and around the theater. It was like Star Wars, you know, God. the queue went for blocks, you know. I wish and, that, that we had that sort of response in the UK, but I don't think. I think, that, again, they were just late-night photo. I don't think they had the cinematic releases that they obviously had in right. the States. Yeah, um, some of them did. Yeah, they got those, you know, Certificate X kind of releases, maybe co-billed with, with a questionable movie like Beyond Atlantis or something like that. So it was mostly all considered uh, trash cinema yeah. in a way, you know, which is which is unfortunate. But as the years wore on, you know, the monster, the Japanese monster cycle in the, in the States, you know, kind of wore down and... Um, and then it got a boost again from television. You know, the films appearing on television uh, uh, and getting high ratings spurred some distributors to bring some more films over to the States. You know, and then you get the, uh, you know, the package in 1970 when they thought it was all dead, you know, and they, uh, and they release uh, War of the Gargantuas and Monster Zero as a double feature, uh, which became a huge hit uh, again. Um, but, uh, you know, you get to like, again, you know, where did I, where do I remember seeing Godzilla? And I think the first Godzilla movie, I have a recollection of, 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 of seeing most of the movie and re- being able to identify the whole film and not just, you know, there was this, this shot. <laughs> what movie was that? You know, was uh, son of Godzilla. And I was probably, I was probably about five or six years old. And, uh, that really kind of captured my imagination because, you know, you have, 
you know, similar to Godzilla vs. the Sea Monster, you know, it's set on an island, and, um, you know, you have this certain tone to it uh, that was really, uh, that really uh, was able to grab children. Uh, not that it talked down to the audience or that it was campy, but these movies were a little more fast-paced. They were definitely more colorful, uh, and, uh, you know, and, and, and there was a lot more monster uh, footage, you know, to be found in, in these films. So that was one of the first ones that I remembered. And then the, the first movie that really solidified uh, my, my fanaticism <laughs> for, for Godzilla uh, was uh, Destroy All Monsters. And uh, that was one that did not pop up on television frequently in our market. And that was one that if you we would get the TV guide, you know, the TV guide magazine would come out on a Tuesday. And, and that was a big day. The reason why, that's why I remember it's a Tuesday. It was a big day for Monster Kids back in the, in the 70s because we'd run to the liquor store after school or the local magazine rack or wherever. The closest one was that sold TV Guide and you would get the fresh TV Guide <laughs> and you would immediately start flipping through and circling all the movies you had to watch. Yeah. And, uh, you know, if Destroy All Monsters popped up, it would be, then it would be a question of where is it playing? Oh, it's playing out of a station in Sacramento, California, which is about 120 miles from San Francisco. And uh, we wouldn't get that station. The reception, the signals weren't that broadcast that strong, some right. stations. So, uh, you know, you would have to find your friend who had paid television, who had c cable, you know. <laughs> who in our class has cable and will allow me to come over and watch this movie at their house and then demand everyone shut up so I can audio record it on cassette? Uh, oh, good which was, so you were one of those, and you went your own audio text book version lot of, as well. Yeah, there was a lot of American fans that I've talked to over the years, and uh, it was a very, you know, shared experience that was uh, not shared. You know, everybody had the same. It was like this hive mind that was working without direct communication. That everyone who had like, well, I can't video record this. You know, I'm going to audio record it. Okay. And then listen, and then listen to death. You know, listen it to, listen to this thing till the tape wears out. You know, yeah. um, but with Destroy All Monsters, it luckily uh, it was it was playing in a theater. It was a kitty matinee, uh, and I you know was playing with a British horror film that I'm not recalling the name of right now. It's like Horror of the Blood Monster or something like that. Some horrible retitling of a Tygon or a Amicus film with Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee are in this, this, and I felt sorry for both of them, you know, being, being in this film. Uh, but, uh, it was double featured with destroy all monsters. And, um, and uh, so I went and saw the film and I sat through the British film as bad as it was. It was like a sort of a witch hunter movie, you know? Yeah. And, uh, and then, and then watch destroy all monsters again, you know, and, uh, and just seeing, you know, that film on the big screen and in a, in, a, in a cinema that was actually did have a very it was a very large cinema with a very large screen. Just, you know, I, the, one of the, the scenes that always comes to mind when I reminisce about seeing that film for the first time in all its widescreen glory uh, was the scene where uh, they're trying to land the SY3 and Godzilla pops up. And then they, he fires his, his ray at, at the SY3 and then they do the emergency escape you know, to get away from him. Yeah. And it's just that, that shot looking down at Godzilla when he fires his ray up, upwards. 
that, you know, really stuck in my head. That's why I was like, oh, my God. You know, Godzilla is the most awesome thing ever. You know? Yeah, I remember one of the things I loved about Destroy Monsters, as I said at the start, I mean, Destroy Monsters is hands down my favorite the Godzilla movies. Um, I mean, at the time, this was Toe were basically saying, this is the last one we're going to do. So we're basically going to throw right. everything we have at the screen. So they right. dug out pretty much any monster they could get their hands on. And hence why it has like this huge cast of monsters. I mean, we've got Anglos, Rodan, Mothra, Monga, or Spiger, as known here in the UK. Uh, Gorosaurus, Vartan, Baragon, Manda, and King Ghidorah. This wonderful movie, and it's established as well one of my favorite things in the Godzilla universe, Monster Island. Right. And I love the setup, the fact that all the monsters in the world have been rounded out and put on this island, and they got these defenses to stop them escaping. And it's kind right. of like a, a Jurassic Park, but for giant monsters. Right. Um, and I just love this, like, this, this setup that they had, and the fact that I was not only just getting one or two monsters as you would get in most most of the Godzilla movies, you were actually right. getting like this huge like all these monsters, and at the end they're going to have like this eight monster battle, which right. again was something it was uh, sold on. And yes, it does get a bit hammy. I mean, we've got that scene where King Ghidorah flies up and um, Anglus is there hanging off the neck and just like amazing fall like, right. five hundred feet to the ground. Right. Um, which and we've got obviously Godzilla putting his hand over his face, and I just love these little humanitarian like little yeah. things that they put in to try and right. Well, you know the interesting thing of, the in, the interesting thing when uh, Angulas falls in the uh, American cut released by American International Pictures, where he covers his eyes and turns away, where Minita covers his eyes and turns away. Okay, uh, that was cut from the U.S. version. Really. So someone in the editing department who was prepping this film for U.S. audiences went, "That's just too much," <laughs> and so they just they cut it out. And it's it, you don't you don't if you don't know it's there, you know you don't miss it. And even if you were familiar with watching the Japanese version, and then you see the American International cut of the film, you know you also don't miss it. <laughs> you don't. It doesn't pop to your head that oh they cut out Minira, you know, recoiling in fear and covering his eyes. Yeah. You know, uh, and you're not really missing anything. I mean, that was the other thing. Uh, some of these films, when they were brought to the States, you know, they were modified for U.S. audiences. Uh, and uh, sometimes, you know, there are certain things that uh, uh, that are regrettable because they might have just reduced the power of something. Uh, or there's cases with Destroy All Monsters where no one misses that shot. And, um, you know, it, it, it elevates the film just a little bit. Because it it's doesn't have this this little element in there that the filmmakers obviously were going like this would be kids were gonna, are going to laugh when they see this that was the only only motivation for for doing that uh, and it's interesting that looking through some of the screenplays of some of these films if you can get your hands on them um, how little the monster action is scripted and how much was left up to the people uh, actually you know, uh, shooting the film. So, you know, they had all this tremendous leeway, you know, it would be the monsters fight and then they kill King Ghidorah. You know, it's like, <laughs> okay. So everything was like, you know, up to the, uh, up to the filmmaker. So it was, you know, pretty much up to, uh, Sadamasa Arikawa, who was, uh, you know, uh, put in charge of the uh, visual effects for that film. And so, uh, yeah. So those little bits, uh, like that, um, Sometimes the filmmakers would sit around and discuss things. How can we do this? What if, what if, you know, Angelus bites King Ghidorah in the neck and then King Ghidorah flies away? And then, you know, I mean, that might have been scripted. Uh, I 
believe that might have been scripted because that's in the storyboards. Yeah. Uh, so, um, you know, you would have Angelos fall to reveal the Keylock base, you know. Uh, but sometimes they would sit around and they would go, well, this would be cool if we did that, you know. You know, even if it was impossible, uh, you know, to physics sometimes, <laughs> they would just go, no, because this would be so awesome on the screen. So it became more of a matter of, of art, so to speak, or the art of cinema rather than anything set in reality. Because at the end of the day, these are, you know, 200-foot-tall creatures that can't exist anyway. Yeah, yeah. You know, so when we start applying physics to things, like I think I had an argument with a friend uh, a couple of years back about he couldn't get into Pacific Rim, the Del Toro film. Oh, really? Because the physics put him off. It was like dragging the dragging the ship through the streets of Hong Kong. The ship would have fallen into many, many pieces before he was able to even swing it at the other monster. Um, yeah, well, you know, if you want science, you know, subscribe to Scientific American. Yeah. I, when I saw Pacific Rim, I saw it as Del Toro's love letter to the kaiju genre. I was like, oh, yeah, especially the scene that you've mentioned where he's dragging the ship and like right. uses a club. I got such a thrill out of that, and the other scene where the monster—you think you're dealing with like a land-based monster—and suddenly it sprouts wings. Right. And I was like, "What the hell?" That just like came out of nowhere. But I loved everything from the design of the mecha up through to the monsters themselves. And I've, it's one of those ones that I really hope that somewhere they've released the the book of the design sketches that they had for both the right. uh, both the mecha and the monsters because they were dealing with about 80 design sketches for each right it would have like this like american idol style contest to like narrow down which ones they were going to use right where the uh production team would sort of vote on it and i i really wish that del toro would return for the sequel but i hope at the same time even though he's only on producing duties that he's keeping a close enough eye to maintain the spirit of right. that, that original film and even with it was just even like the simple details, such as where they're showing how the robots were like designed, and you've got like the guy and he's got he's extending his hand, and you can see the background. The mech is doing right. the exact same movement, and it was. And when you saw like where he punches his punches his palm, and you felt a real sort of presence there, and it was kind of like you were getting what you always wanted with the Godzilla movies, but due to the limitations of practical effects and whatnot, they couldn't obviously do them. Right. Um, so it was a lot of uh, fan fulfillment, but. Destroyer Monsters, again, is just pure fan fulfillment. I mean, we've got the five Tokyo Godfathers last film that they right. worked together on. Uh, right. You've got Ishiro Honda, who's obviously one of my favorite directors. I mean, he's right. up there with Jun Fukurada. Apologize if I'm mispronouncing any of these names here. Uh, it happens, man. It happens. He's <laughs> one of my favorite, obviously, directors. The way that Honda shoots these monster movies, he shoots them at very low angles, very... He, Matches perfectly capture the scale, and especially when you look at Mothra. Mothra, I was right. was a very ropey character, and then I saw the obviously the spin the original film, right. and it was like I finally get this char- character, and the scene right. where she's on the dam, and you yeah. get the size of the scale of of what Mothra is, and just this intimidating force. The same way with obviously in the original Godzilla, the, when you have Godzilla's first appearance over the hill, and you you really get the presence of this intimidating giant monster. Right. Right. Um, there was perhaps lost in some of the later ones where we just had this focus on the uh, the monster size smackdowns, but uh, that in turn brings me to uh, the one well, the main suit performance, uh, Haru Nakajima, um, mm-hmm. who I have to say is probably one of the most dedicated actors to his cause. The fact that 
he was quite happy to be spray painted while wearing the suit. Um, he was blown up several times. They put like explosive <laughs> collars on him. And the fact that Toho, when they re- when they retired him, that he got he went to work in the bowling alley on site. <laughs> yeah. You just don't get these sort of stories with right. in Productions, but. I admire the dedication he has to his performance. I mean, he, he's pouring out like a, a liter of sweat a time. Right. Um, and there's all those great photos of him with being poured like uh, cups of uh, tea while wearing half the suits and stuff. But right, right. I, staying, I staying hydrated. <laughs> exactly. And I love, I've seen when you see interviews with him and he's like talks about playing the Godzilla and like how he would get himself in the mindset of playing this powerful monster. He's not like, Oh, I'm just some guy in a suit stomping on buildings and stuff. He's like, oh, I, yeah. I'm Godzilla. You know, I'm this. Right. And I think that, I think that's true with that. Uh, not just the Japanese monster films, but I think that people have pretty much universally disregarded the, you know, the men in the suits. And it was really great that my friend Frank Woodward uh, did this documentary called Men in Suits a few years ago, where we were able to get uh, Mr. Nakajima. Uh, to be one of the interview subjects. But they talk about the old guys from Charlie Gamora, who was one of the first gorilla guys in cinema, you know, and uh, all the way up to, uh, you know, um, the guys playing monsters now for, you know, uh, for like Del Toro and uh, people like that. And they all have that same mindset that, you know, we're actors and this is an acting job. We're putting 100% in it. I'm not, I'm not just, you know, a very embarrassed extra. You know that that they dressed up as a gorilla, and I'm running around the set waving my arms around. You know these these guys were all dedicated actors that sometimes probably were were doing more of a serious job than some of the other actors and 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 and, and like some of the pictures they appeared in. Like you know like you know I'm not talking about the Japanese monster films, of course, but you know things like Bella Lugosi meets a Brooklyn gorilla. You know I'm sure that the the guy the guy in the gorilla suit was probably Charles Gamora. You know, uh, there were a couple different gorilla guys in Hollywood, uh, you know, that, that, was, that were running around probably taking a lot more serious than everybody else on the set, uh, you know, being very dedicated to doing the best performance, you know, that they could as a monster or gorilla or whatever the hell they were doing. So uh, and, you know, the other thing that was that was happening as uh, in the in the 60s in Japan, too, was the fact as the films went on, you know, they figured, well, you know, if Godzilla is going to be uh sort of this very, uh, very one-track-minded evil creature uh, as he was in Mothra versus Godzilla, uh, in every picture, that would get kind of boring, you know? Yeah. Uh, of course, you know, you have to regress back to King Kong versus Godzilla, where the whole film was kind of set up as, as uh, almost like a satirical uh, production in a way, uh, and where, you know, Godzilla and Kong have some antics, you know, <laughs> In the, in, in the fight there, and then you go right back to Godzilla versus the thing, where it's just completely straight-jawed, you know, with the uh, uh, with the monsters, very straight-faced, uh, you know, and then the comedy kind of goes, uh, a little bit of the comic relief, I should say, goes to, you know, the human characters. And and that was sort of like the winning, there was a winning formula happening there, and, and, and which goes, recalls back to Mothra. You could see this development happening uh, through, you know, you have Godzilla, then you get uh, the next big picture, you know, being Rodan, you know, a very straight face films, uh, pretty much humorless uh, films. And and then you get to uh, and I don't mean that in a negative way. And then you get to, uh, you know, a film like Varan, which a lot of people dismiss, but it's kind of important because it establishes <clears throat> a new screenwriter 
<clears throat> named Shinichi Sekizawa. And Sekizawa comes in and creates the triumvirate. So three main characters. There's a lot of other characters in the film, but there's three main characters that you go on the journey with. Yeah. And you have, like, a reporter, you know, you have the female photojournalist, and then you have the cup reporter. And that sort of carries on into Mothra, you know? You have the female photographer, photojournalist. You have the, you have the ace reporter. The third person becomes the scientist. That carries over exactly from Mothra, you know, into, uh, you know, into uh, uh, Godzilla versus uh, The Thing, or Godzilla versus Mothra, 64. Yeah where you have the same sort of set of characters. And that sets up this, this interplay you can have between the characters, sort of almost in the 1930s American screwball comedy, uh, where they can kind of bounce off each other. The situation is grim, but there's humanity at the center, uh, and any kind of relief of tension would be done with through the human characters. And uh, then the monster business could be a lot more uh, straightforward. Uh, but as the films progress... Uh, you know, starting with Ghidra the Three-Headed Monster uh, later in 64, uh, they start having more fun with the monsters. Yeah. And and that was sort of like, I think that's the only part where like Honda and uh, and Tsuburaya kind of uh, maybe clashed a little bit. They always, got, everybody always has written that they've gotten, they, they got along famously and they were on the same wavelength all the time. But, you know, there, there are times in interviews where Honda has said things like, well, I thought we humanized the monsters too much. Uh, after a certain point, and it was and it was always Subaraya who was the one that was trying to humanize them. Yeah. You know, so uh, and the formula proved correct because the films went from these very austere, not really austere, but these big big spectacle pictures, uh, you know, to uh, family entertainment pictures, and they didn't really become, you know, kitty pictures until the seventies, and that was like as an afterthought more than a purposeful evolution, uh, you know, after Destroy All Monsters was, uh, was, was produced. Yeah. I think it's really, I would say, Invention of the Astro Monsters, so 65, that we start seeing Godzilla become more human, become more of a good guy, and he's obviously, most famously, does the uh, old Scottish jig <laughs> on the moon. <laughs> um, right. By the time, obviously, when we get into, I mean, we've ever heard the deep, I mean, that was originally designed for King Kong, so... Right. Again, they're still trying to push him more as the hero, and that one always gets picked up because even they wrote it for a, as a King Kong script. So Godzilla's right. there doing all these King Kong style things. So he's throwing rocks, and right, uh, he's, he's he's not quite uh, the Godzilla we obviously come to see. And then by the time we obviously get onto like Son of Godzilla, I mean, um, the change in the face, so he has more of like a, an Asian face. He most memorably has the more slanted eyes. Um, which obviously become very prominent when you get onto like uh, Son of Godzilla so 67. So while they didn't like make the huge leap, you could see the little changes. I've really from Invasion of the Astral Monster onwards and throughout that sort of shower period. And it's really when we right. get to 84 with the return of Godzilla and marking the start of the uh, Heisei uh, sort right. of period that they decide to make Godzilla evil again. Right. Um, if that's the right way to see, because it. it I don't know whether you can really call monster these monsters as being evil because it's more they're going off their instinct and like certainly when you look at the early Gamera movies, right? Um, it was this very Darwinian battle for territory that seemed like more than one monster was trying to save Tokyo uh, compared to the right. other. Um, but obviously within those 
later Shadow movies, uh, when you've got things like Godzilla vs. Gigan, Godzilla vs. Megalon, or Mechagodzilla, he's very clearly that Godzilla is playing the hero. He's there, right. same in Japan, and he goes off and backs the ocean or wherever he's, he chooses his head off to at the end of the picture. And, and uh, you know, he's, he's very clearly the hero, but obviously by 84, they've decided that he's not going to be the hero. And certainly when we get on to right. Godzilla vs. King Ghidorah, again, another standout film that they're again justifying the reason for him to be evil. In this case, it's modern nuclear technology that turns him evil. Um, right. Apparently, H-bombs will make you a good monster, but uh, if you use a modern nuclear weapon, it's going to make bad Godzilla, which <laughs> I don't understand the logic there. Um, I mean, what is your feelings really on the sort of shout, the uh, Headside series? I mean, these are darker sort of films, so right. I came to these when I was like a teenager, so it right. perfectly suited my mindset. You grow up watching Shower, you're a kid, these are fun monster movies. You get a little more changed right. as a teenager, you want something darker. Oh, wait a minute, Godzilla's aged with you. Um, right. And I was very lucky in the UK that we had a limited number of these films come out. Uh, like, Barlante was released up here. I think they went up to Godzilla vs. Mothra, and then the later films, I basically had to import um, right. as Region 1 copies. So, I mean, how did you obviously feel about the slightly darker turn that... Right. Uh, that well, you know, it's like... Took? Right. Well, I, I grew up, you know, I grew up obviously with the original films uh, and, you know, before, you know, the, the 80s and 90s films existed. Um, and, uh, well, you know, uh, to be fair, Godzilla throwing boulders, he was throwing boulders before Godzilla versus the sea monster in, uh, in Ghidra, the three-headed monster. He throws a couple boulders at Ghidra uh, before, he, uh, <laughs> before he goes flying off with his two tails between his legs. Um but, you know, the Godzilla started, you know, the series started evolving more towards, you know, like general audiences, like I said. Then by the time you get to uh, something like Godzilla vs. the Sea Monster, uh, they were trying to appeal to teens and young adults because uh, because of what was happening with uh, – there was a big uh, uh, interest in Japanese culture, pop culture at the time, in Hawaii, in the tropics, in the South Seas. So it was a very topical picture. So that's why two of the films were set, you know, on islands in these tropical settings. And they, they were marketing, okay, we're going to get the teen and the youth market with these movies, you know. And then that didn't really pan out as well as they thought it was because you had a number of things happening. You had television in Japan was uh, becoming more prominent. Uh, theaters were closing. Ticket sales were down all across the board for motion pictures, mirroring what happened in the United States 10 years prior. And so the Toho was scrambling any way they, they could to try to bring audiences back to the cinemas. And by the time you get to the mid-60s, you know, you have things like Ultra Q on television and, uh, and the space giants, Magma Taishi. And um, kids are saying, I don't have to go to the movies and spend money. I can watch this for free on TV. So you have Toho trying a whole bunch of different things. Uh, and then in the, you know, the mid-60s, the other thing was... You know, doing War of the Gargantuas, uh, a couple of other films uh, to try to usher in maybe a new type of monster picture. So, you know, then uh, they decide to wrap up the Godzilla series in 68 with Destroy All Monsters. And then Toei Studios, one of the rival of the Big Five studios in Japan, starts doing this uh, kitty matinee series where they're packaging a feature film with a bunch of shorts animated and live action. And those are tremendous. And most of the program is recycled. It's TV shows being shown in a theater. 
like episodes of animated TV shows and one feature film. Like maybe they did one animated feature that's original, a short feature that runs about 60 to 70 minutes. Always kind of sci-fi or fantasy oriented. And they were doing things with giant monsters, you know, things like uh, Phantom Flying Ship and uh, uh, 30,000 Leagues Under the Sea. Uh, And that was right, not 20,000 Leagues, but 30,000 Leagues Under the Sea. (laughs) No, but anyway, they were doing these, I'm probably mangling the title on that one, but they were doing these animated films and these packages, these kitty matinee packages where the parents could drop their kids off at the theater and the kids would be busy for three, three and a half hours yeah. while the parents ran around and did shopping and got the kids out of their hair. That sounds so, like how my parent, my father used to do things. He used to dump me and my right. brother in double features. Oh, yeah. So like you know? this belief that one of us wouldn't watch over the other. And yeah. that, what harm could we come to in a double feature? But he always exactly. used to turn up too early, so we always used to miss the end of the second film. <laughs> yeah, so. the, you know, par- parents in the in the states did the same thing, you know, and and uh, and theater owners and, and distributors, you know, tailored, you know, kitty matinee packages uh, for that purpose. But so Toho saw Toei's success in this children's market, especially when Toei does this co-production with an American studio, one of the major American studios, MGM, and produces this film called The Green Slime, which is which with uh, an all-Western, all mostly all-Western cast, mostly American stars, or fading American stars, or, you know, cowboy TV stars. Yeah. Uh, Robert Horton and Richard Jekyll, and then, you know, Bond girl, Luciana Paluzzi. And, and they do this science fiction film where the Japanese version is cut down to 68 minutes, they cut out all the, the romance, you know, all the, uh, the the love triangle stuff and get right to the business. <laughs> they get right to the biscuits of the monsters and the ray guns and all that. And in 68 minutes, they package it for kids and then they put a bunch of cartoons. And that's Toei putting this out as part of their package, their, their children's uh, cartoon uh, festival package. Toho sees this and goes, why aren't we doing this? So they start doing this thing called the Toho Champion Festival, which is an imitation of what Toei's doing. And they take the old Godzilla films and cut them down to about an hour and then slap a bunch of, like, you know, an episode of Ultraman or, or, or cartoons. Yeah. And not literally an episode of Ultraman, but, but you know, things like that. And, um, and then they, as they go into the 70s, uh, in, well, actually, 1969, they said, well, let's do an original feature and let's bring back Godzilla. And, you know, and we're going to aim it. This is a kid's package. We're just going to make a kiddie Godzilla movie. And that's Godzilla's Revenge. So then you get into the 70s pictures. We're all kiddie matinee pictures. Every, no matter how violent they are, because that just was reflective of what was the currents in children's programming yeah. that was happening on, on Japanese television at the time. In, in shows like Kamen Rider and the superhero shows that were on TV in the 70s, they routinely had... Uh, human the monsters would cover the human beings in some slime and they would be dissolved into skeletons or you know people were decapitated or or, or, or you know uh, vivisected by the bad guys and uh, and uh, so this was reflected in in those Godzilla pictures and also you know doing more violence in 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 Japanese films at that time was also a, a way to try to get people back into theaters. Where they started really overdoing in in every kind of an action picture, the action pictures for adults like Lone Wolf and Cub is a perfect example, you know, where you know they were just going way beyond what would be done on television in terms of violence or sex, and uh, the violence also translated to those '70s Godzilla pictures, you know, and so 
you could a lot of people say that Godzilla's Revenge is a, a, a terrible Godzilla movie. You know, it's not a it's not a Godzilla movie. It's a it's a movie about a kid who is obsessed with Godzilla movies. Yeah. Is the point of that, and so it's sort of the Wizard of Oz of Godzilla films. I, you know, uh, yeah, the, anything involving Minerva, yeah, the bane of my life. That great lumpy mash <laughs> monstrosity, and the fact they made him worse in the later movies. He still remains my wife's favorite character in the whole of the Godzilla mo- the franchise. It's like of all the monsters yeah. she could choose, she chooses <clears throat> that annoying little sod. Well, um, yeah, to- Toho Toho purposely said. When they created that character in '67, it was to appeal to women and children, and yep, and it works, you know. And uh, so, you know, you get to this 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 stretch of uh, the kitty matinee movies with the extreme violence, yeah. Uh, Godzilla versus Hedera through Terra Mecha Godzilla. So you figure Godzilla's Revenge was successful enough in that kitty matinee package, even though you look at the ticket numbers. Remember, this was a kitty matinee package. This wasn't showing at eight o'clock or nine o'clock at night. And in, in, to a general audience, this was you'd have to go to the kitty matinee to see it. It did phenomenally well. So they, they produced these other pictures, you know, uh, all original pictures that were, you know, feature length because Godzilla's Revenge is only like 69 minutes long. And then they followed with the other pictures being feature length. And, you know, uh, those ran their course because you had a, con, a confluence of things uh, where film production uh, you know, uh, costs skyrocketed because of the uh, worldwide energy crisis and oil shortage, um, and making and even the stuff that was being made on television, which reaches peak in 1960, uh, 1973, with the just this boom in Japanese superhero programs, which is insane because between 1971 and 1979, okay, so from 1971 to 1979, on network television in prime time. There were 63, that's 63, 63 superhero programs on Japanese television. The vast majority were between 1971 and 1973, which were the peak years. So that's a tremendous amount of, of programming that, like kaiju, giant monsters, and the human-sized superheroes uh, fighting human-sized monsters, that was just big proliferation that also influenced what was going on you know, in the Godzilla films of the 70s. Uh, when that market crashed, uh, 74, 75, the production number dropped dramatically and Toho decided to retire Godzilla. So it was really great, you know, that, that Tomoyuki Tanaka, the producer of the Godzilla films, uh, he really wanted to bring back Godzilla. He thought that maybe it was a bad idea to do the kitty pictures, um, especially since those were being, uh, you know, distributed around the world. And and uh, presented to foreign audiences as the latest Godzilla pictures, they didn't come with a disclaimer. This is a kitty matinee movie. <laughs> this is a kitty Godzilla film. And I remember a review in Cinefantastic magazine for Godzilla vs. Megalon, which said, "Another ho ho from Toho." <laughs> yeah. You know, and which which basically said, "Is this what the Japanese are? Is this what the Japanese are passing off as science fiction today?" With the you know obviously out of context, the writer had no idea that this was a a kitty picture. This was sort of like the Toho equivalent of the Mexican film Santa Claus, you know, <laughs> where he fights the devil. You know, Santa uh, Claus fights the devil. You know, so you know you have these these kitty matinee pictures. Tomiyuki Tanaka has vast regrets, you know, and and plans this return. And I mean, as early as 1976, 77, he's trying to revive Godzilla already, you know. And it takes him a bunch of years. I mean, they go through all this development of where he still wants Godzilla to be heroic, 
but Godzilla is going to go back to his basic character of being this, this, this not, I don't subscribe to the force of nature, uh, thing, but, uh, you know, uh, the Japanese kind of see these kaiju and, and, uh, the monsters as sort of, uh, you know, divine beings, you know, and so this is how I also view it. Cause that's the way they view it. That's the way you're supposed to view it. Yeah. Uh, so Godzilla is this divine being that is neither good nor bad, you know, and, uh, you know, he's going to be defending his turf. So, you know, you know, the, the, you have like the exorcist is at the top of the worldwide box office. You have the omen and Tomiyuki Tanaka comes up with this brilliant idea to do Godzilla versus the devil. Uh, that falls the wayside, but all these elements, there were, there were, there were so many developmental, uh, uh, ideas, between the end of Terror of Mechagodzilla and what became the Godzilla film released in 1984, Return of Godzilla, yeah. that they were vast, but elements from them all uh, were in there. The, the element of, like, uh, you know, uh, Godzilla having to, uh, 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 returning to his roots, so to speak, you know, or in all of those developments. So you get into the Heisei pictures, and, you know, I enjoyed every one of them that came out as they were new. Okay. But upon reflection on some of them, they're, they're, some of them are harder to watch as time has gone on. Yeah, I would say, I mean, Godzilla vs. Balante, I was so excited to, to yes. watch that. And I was, I was crushed by its plodding pace. Yeah. Um, and it's, I mean, you just obviously reminded me, really, because I always viewed the uh, Heisei years as being the most violent one. Ones, but as you rightfully pointed out, I mean, from 71, we've got Godzilla vs. Ghidorah, which has obviously got people being uh, turned to skeletons. Um, yeah. Godzilla vs. Gigan, we've got bloody wounds appearing. It became very Gamma-esque, I found, such as right. that nasty gash on Anglis's neck, which splays blood over the camera. Right. Uh, got a slash shoulder. Obviously, when we get into, I think, uh, Godzilla vs. Mechagodzilla, we've got that horrible jaw break on Anglis, which really shocked the, right. the hell out of me. It was like, what the hell's going on? This is right. Godzilla. He doesn't like break people's jaws and stuff. He beats them up and they like blow up or run away. One of the two is going right. to happen. Um, right. But as you said, obviously when we get into like 84, he's still in that darker sort of trend. I mean, the return of Godzilla in 84, I mean, we've obviously got the horrible American cut um, title Godzilla 1985, which sees Raymond Blair reappear for no apparent reason. Apart from now he's psychic and can talk to Godzilla. <laughs> Who the hell came up with that idea? Oh, uh, yeah, that was, uh, you know, when they were developing that picture at New World, you know, they were saying, how are we going to market this to the United States? It has no stars in it. <laughs> you know, and then someone said, well, geez, you know, Burr was in the first one and they, you know, cut the Japanese version. They made an American version with scenes with Burr. Let's just do the same thing. It's, it would, it would, I, I think anyone who that film was given to, I was trying to figure out how to exploit it in the United States would, would have came to the same conclusion of, Hey, let's ring up Burr. Yeah. You know? He's not doing he, much. He, well, he's, he's, you know, he's doing, he's doing, uh, you know, the, the revival of, uh, of Perry Mason, but, oh, yeah. you know, but, uh, which means he's working so we can get him. Let's have him come in for a day, you know, and shoot all this stuff, you know, and then Burr comes in and, you know, he refuses to read most of the dialogue that they've written for him. Which 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 was bad. They had him reading like campy stuff, and he said he was the, he was actually the person that made gave that character in the film any dignity, because you know he refused. Apparent according to legend, uh, in ver- wherever you, whatever versions you read, 
you know, uh, is that, you know, he, he was the one who was like, I'm not going to say that. Like in one scene, they wanted him even to just like to pop open a, a Dr. Pepper and drink it. And, uh, uh, and he refused to do that. There was a there was an ad campaign uh, prior to the American release of that film with Dr Pepper the pri- uh, prior uh, October. The film was released in August of 1985 in the U.S. But in uh, October of '84, uh, they did this. Dr Pepper uh, did this uh, ad campaign uh, in Halloween, uh, featuring a lot of classic monsters: Frankenstein, Dracula, etc., and Godzilla. And during this part of the 80s in the United States, there was a huge nostalgia for the 50s. Huge nostalgia. So people started looking back at the, you know, the, the horror films and the, and the sci-fi films of the 50s with much love and affection. Uh, and, and Godzilla was prominent among that. So Godzilla had his own sort of revival without anybody really stirring the pot, so to speak. As people reflected upon the 50s, Godzilla came back up. And uh, so uh, this ad campaign... Uh, with Godzilla became the most popular out of the set of commercials that they did. So when New World Pictures picked up the film, they said, we're going to go run with Dr. Pepper to get some sponsorship <laughs> because they got Godzilla in the ads. They said, yeah. we'll, put a, we'll, put a, we'll put a Dr. Pepper vending machine in the back of every scene with uh, the American characters in the film, and then we'll have them drinking Dr. Peppers on screen. And they tried to make Raymond Byrd do it, and he said, I'm not going to do that. That's undignified. You know, so. <laughs> It's... <laughs> It's unsurprising of Corman yeah. to actually pull something like that. Right. The last true great American maverick that, that he is. Um, but yes, I, d- I always loved the, what he would obviously, how he would take a lot of these films. And um, when you look at a film such as Planet of the Prehistoric Women, which was right. um, like a Russian monster movie, and right. it went through three different edits before it ended up as his version, which was obviously Planet yeah, of the Prehistoric Women. You know what's amazing is one. I think one of the versions was edited by Francis Ford Coppola, and another one was done by Peter Bogdanovich. Yeah. Oh, so good. it's like, boop, weird. <laughs> you know, making like I'm I'm cutting exploitation pictures for Roger Corman. I I love seeing the people who came through the Corman Film School. There's a wonderful documentary, uh, Corman's World, um, where Corman speaks very candidly about his career, and they have cutaways to various people such as Jack Nicholson and Ron Howard who obviously came up through for the uh for the school and stuff and there's this really touching moment where jack nicholson just breaks down in tears he's that grateful for what corman did for him um, right. and obviously the breaks he, he gave from him. and you you forget that obviously what trauma would have would essentially pick up from corman is that he right. was like taking these guys who couldn't get a job anywhere else they had no experience and he would like give them a budget and a script and send them on the way to to produce things often in like insane circumstances when right you look at films like piranha where dante essentially has some bubbling red water and a few plastic fish to work with right um <laughs> but what obviously what these uh what these directors would go on to from there and now when we look at like trauma uh trauma which obviously gave matt and trey uh park right uh, matt Stone and trey parker there start with like cannibal the mu- musical billy bob thornton again came up there because he was in chopper chicks and zombie yeah. town yeah james um, gunn yeah james gunn i I'm always amused when when James Gunn got Guardians of the Galaxy because I mean, did they look at his back catalogue? <laughs> he did what he did: Loyal Love for Trauma. Um, yeah. I believe he did Tromeo and Juliet as well, or he worked on that one. Yeah. Um, obviously, Loyal Love about 
the yuppie couple giving lollipops to the homeless. He did uh, <laughs> Sliver, which again is a very right. trauma-esque movie. Right. He then did Super, which I guess was his test reel for working for Marvel. Right. Uh, where you obviously have Rain Wilson going around hitting people with a wrench and telling crime yeah. to shut up. Right. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I think you know. I think they also they uh, you know they they approached him because they knew that he was a gigantic, you know, walking encyclopedia of comic book lore. Yeah, you know, and uh, so that was another reason, and also because that he was he was one of the very few people that read and was a fan of the Guardians of the Galaxy comic book. <laughs> but, I mean, the Guardians of the Galaxy comic book, I think, was probably the biggest punt Marvel have taken so far in right. in the Marvel universe. No one. Apart from, like, obviously the diehard comic book fans knew what Guns of the Galaxy was. Right. It's not like a mainstream title. It's not like Spider-Man or Iron Man. Or right. Oh, yeah. Ones. And essentially what they did, and certainly for myself watching it, I got the same excitement I got watching Star Wars as a kid. Exactly. I think as an adult, you're never going to get the same excitement. The same way right. when I watched Pacific Rim, I got that same excitement I yeah. got watching Guns of the Movies. He somehow managed to give us Star Wars, but... With different characters um, and right. a different universe, but right to and over you know and you know and like thirty years apart, mm. you know and thirty plus years apart, and 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 re, and just and energizing those people who are the fans of the original movies, you know, both Star Wars and the Godzilla films. I I felt exactly the same way about Guardians of the Galaxy, uh, and uh, I even went as far as to say that you know it. You know, it recaptured the magic of seeing films like Star Wars and Raiders of the Lost Ark for the first time. Yes. It, it really, it really honestly did that. And, uh, you know, it had, a, it had a humanity at its heart, which was very important. And, and it's the same thing. And you could say, like, well, you know, Pacific Rim is just like robots bashing, you know, uh, monsters and uh, a lot of destruction. And uh, you have very wooden, uh, one-dimensional, I shouldn't say wooden, but like these one-dimensional Characters, which Del Toro likes to point out, are archetypes, not you – know, it's like they're not one-dimensional because, you know, this is like the 80s sports movie, you know? Yeah. You know, that's how he, he kind of created those characters. It's like those rivalries within – like, you know, we're all on the same team, but we're having the rivalries. You know, it's, it's sort of like Slapshot, you know, with, with giant monsters and robots in it. But, uh, you know, and but when I was watching the film, I went, this is exactly how – these characters are supposed to be for this film because it's not about, uh, so to speak, an individual character's journey as much as the collective of the characters. Yeah, you know, it's it's humanity's fight, not the one character. He has his own demons to wrestle with, but it's not stopping the narrative of the picture dead in its tracks, like you know some of some films where you know a, a character. You're, you, you're, you, you're behind this character. He goes through these trials and tribulations. The middle of the film is him just being depressed. Then <laughs> someone magical character gives him some words of wisdom, you know, and then, and then he, he moves on and then he moves on. But they spend a lot of screen time with the person doing that. They kind of just shovel that through. And, and the film ultimately, like Del Toro says, ultimately this movie is about giant robots and giant monsters. Yeah. And, uh, and it recaptures that magic of, of seeing things like that you know that that stuff that he grew up with that you know I also grew up with you know things like Johnny Sokka and his flying robot and Mazinger Z and things like this so you know the Japanese super robot genre which it emulates a lot oh definitely and i got certainly for myself another reference point i would throw in there would be things like giant robo 
or Machine yeah. God Corpse, or the giant uh, mecha anime, uh, which right. seemed... An, I've, what I loved about Del Toro is the fact that he established this universe in the opening five minutes, and where he obviously talks about these pilots becoming like this rock star status, and that we stop fearing the monsters. We think that we've now regained the power, so we create toys and we merchandise right. uh, the monsters. And we have like these characters who are fascinated by uh, the, by the kaiju, um, right. such as the one of the lead scientists. And he's got like the the tattoos, but mm-hmm. I loved uh, yeah, I loved that, and I think on these. I think the only other film which has really done that would be Zack Snyder's Watchmen, where we get the perfect idea of what this universe is within the opening credits. Right. Um, and, well, the other the other big film, culturally, you know, uh, is Star Wars. You know, yeah. because it opens up in a universe where, you know, it's explained in opening crawl, you know, what this universe is. You know, it's not it's not the future of humanity on Earth, and they're not from Earth. This is in another, you know, this is a galaxy and a different galaxy and a long time ago. Uh, and uh, and uh, Del Toro said that, you know, basically he followed for Pacific Rim. He patterns Pacific Rim's narrative structure uh, off of Star Wars. But uh, he inverts it where the good guys are sort of like struggling and hoping to get the upper hand. So he inverted it where the heroes, it opens with the heroes have the upper hand. There was, there was this. I love it's what I especially enjoy with uh, Rim is the fact that he's not afraid to swing the hatchet. Right. That you know these characters aren't invincible. We see many of my favorite characters wiped out just very suddenly, and uh, right. such as when we see like the Russian, um, the Russian crew just suddenly like taken out within the opening battle uh, in right. the Tokyo Harbor. Right. Um, one of the things I will criticize for um, is the Australian crew, mm-hmm. and. The main reason I would criticize them is that I really wanted them to be a British crew, just purely uh-huh. because of the fact that we have the the father of the father son team, who has his right. bulldog, right. and if you made him a British crew, it would have been this wonderful throwback to like the tank commanders of World War Two, where right. they would have things like bulldogs and these like fake forms of status to, and it would have been like this wonderful throwback and like have them be portrayed like as these like old school tank commanders, but right. He works as an Australian. It was just like I was thinking, oh, it would have been perfect if you just like tweaked it that a little bit. Um, yeah, maybe maybe in two they'll have a British crew. Maybe I'm just like hold out, but at the same time I'm I'm still dismayed the fact that uh, they didn't have um, uh, Rinko uh, Kikuchi, who obviously yeah. plays uh, Mako, the um, the co-pilot Raleigh in in, right. in Opposite Rim. They haven't picked her up to uh, to play the major in uh, the Ghost in the Shell. Uh, live right. action film. I right. would have felt she was been the perfect casting. Yeah. Um, yeah. There's a whole, you know, there's that, you know, that Hollywood politics coming in where mm. it's like Scarlett Johansson's a big box office name. She'll yeah. sell tickets. She'll sell tickets to this property that nobody knows what it is. Yeah. Even though, you know, fans around the world know what Ghost in the Shell is. But the average person from Tacoma, Washington, or, you know, you know, uh, in the United States, doesn't know who what Ghost in the Shell is. So it's almost like it's not a pre-existing, it's not a pre-existing franchise, quote unquote, that everyone's familiar with. So we have to stick. I know you come up with the whole, you know, we have to stick a big name in it, uh, and therefore then you get the the backlash of of the whitewashing, you know, in Hollywood. So which is really which is really strange to me because yeah. growing up in that period of the seventies, where my heroes as a kid were. Uh, you know, uh, actors like Susumu Kurobe, who played Hayata in the original Ultraman, 
and and Akira Kubo from you know the the Toho Monster Pictures, you know, um, those guys were like heroes to me. So I grew up even before Bruce Lee, you know, made a name for himself around the world. You know, I had uh, heroes who were not white American males. You know, and I didn't care, and I didn't even think about that. There was no th- thought process involved. I never pondered. You know, oh, well, you know, they're Japanese. I just went, Japanese stuff is cool. <laughs> you know, that was my main motivator was like, Japanese make really great, uh, fun movies that I really like. And the monsters are really cool because they're not like dinosaurs. They're bigger than dinosaurs and they have all these powers and they're not, they're not just animals. You know, they're these, these, these sort of demigod creatures, these divine monsters yeah and and that was part of the big uh, appeal but at the same time it's like we were accustomed uh kids across the united states from you know the the coasts the more cosmopolitan coast to the you know the bible belt and the wheat belt and and, and the rust belt and the flyover states you know uh in in areas where people didn't have much contact with uh anyone uh, not of their culture uh and they had very little contact with Asians, you know, these guys were their heroes too. Mm. And they developed their first crushes with some of the actresses in, in the Toho pictures or, you know, like Ultraman, which is, you know, honestly, but true confession, you know, Ultraman is, is the show that really thrust me into this whole world entirely. Um, because it was on Monday through Friday, you know, uh, assaulting my brain <laughs> a five-year-old's brain Monday through Friday with giant monsters in a half-hour package that was full of color, quick editing, you know, that wasn't really uh, common in those days. And, and this, and this sort of jazz driven score, uh, that, uh, that really, you know, fired the imagination and, and allowed me to, you know, uh, maybe gravitate towards Japanese monsters when, you know, the, then the Godzilla pictures became more common on television you know, uh, so my first love really is kind of Ultraman. That's what really kind of captured me and carried me and kept me. And then when Ultraman disappeared from television, you know, everything, all my energy went into Godzilla, Kith and Kin. Yeah. At that, you know, but uh, so that that's what was happening, you know, in, you know, in the States. And so you have this, the, a bunch of kids that grew up in the United States and, and, and Del Toro and growing up in Mexico, seeing some of the same stuff. You know, the Space Giants and Ultraman, they got more in Mexico than we got here uh, nationwide. But uh, those those were the kind of things that, influ- you know, uh, informed and influenced his young mind. I think he said one of his first drawings he did as a kid was his own giant robot, but it was a cutaway. So, you know, he was of like, course. well, here's here's the control room and then here's where my bed is, you know. <laughs> oh, here's yeah, of my, course, you, my, you're going to have a bed. Yeah. And the kitchen and my TV, you know, and all that in there. And he did this drawing he talked about at, at length in one interview that he, that he was doing, which was, you know, so he comes from the same mindset as a as a kaiju crazy kid. And that really translated, you know, into uh, the film that he made. Yeah. I have a question, really. If American audiences viewed these films the, the same way that a Japanese audience do, would Pacific Rim have been viewed more differently than it was here in the, in the States? Because I remember speaking to uh, uh, Ryu Kitamura, who obviously mm-hmm. directed because of the Final Wars in 2004, essentially a rehash of uh, Destroy All Monsters, um, a film which 
seems to divide Godzilla fans. I really enjoyed it. I know a lot of people didn't like it. Um, mm-hmm. I think I enjoyed it the same way that I enjoyed Destroy Monsters. The fact that it's an all-out monster assault. There's just every monster from the Godzilla franchise, including right. the American Godzilla, um, who gets his ass kicked in like five seconds by the Japanese right. Godzilla, is right. going to go. And he was saying that to be asked to direct a Godzilla movie holds the same honor and respect that a British director would feel being asked to direct a James Bond movie. Mm-hmm. And I think whenever I've been trying to explain Godzilla movies to people, I try to put that point across. And the fact that right. to a Japanese audience, they aren't just ropey sort of uh, monster movies. You know, these are films which garner a lot of honor and respect and they've got this this in-depth history and culture to them. Right. Um, and that's what I think a lot of people missed out on when they saw Pacific Rim. They thought, oh, this is like those Godzilla movies. This is like the Gamera movies. You know, it's just you know, giant monsters and robots fighting. It's like, you know, rock and sock and robots sort of thing. Right. Um, yeah, I think, yeah, I do I do think that there were two things working against uh, Pacific Rim in the United States. And, and, the, and the first thing was, uh, you know, the uh, sort of uh, the frame of reference. Because, again, un, un, unknown, you know, it's an original story. It's not a pre-existing franchise, <laughs> which... You know, Hollywood insisted on doing this this kind of thing with the existing franchises, uh, in the, in, you know, starting really in the '90s and the early 2000s, in you know, in a, in a very uh, shove it down your throat rate. You know, it, it, then it had the ability to sort of take over the. Uh, there, it worked where American audiences just wanted to see pre-existing franchises. Yeah. You know, it almost it, it became that that bad. So, I think that was working against the film. Uh, the film didn't do as badly in the United States as some of the people like to skew the numbers a certain way because they cut the number of screens it was supposed to play on by 2000. Right. So the film that was actually number one, which was some inane comedy with uh, Adam Sandler, uh, which was a sequel, uh, in fact, that played on 2000 more screens than Pacific Rim. So it's not just when the films play in theaters and people are going, well, you know, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles is making more money than Guardians of the Galaxy. Well, that doesn't necessarily mean that Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, the, the Michael Bay version, is a superior film to Guardians of the Galaxy because it's not. But, you know, it's, it's, you have to look at the number of screens it's playing at. And plus, Guardians of the Galaxy, another example of a film that didn't have, wasn't a pre-existing franchise, but it did have the luck of having the Marvel uh, moniker branded on it. So people were going, it's another Marvel picture. So, you know, let's go see the next Marvel picture the same way that, you know, as kids we used to go, oh, it's another Toho movie. Yay. (laughs) You know, we're going to go see the, you know, it's Latitude Zero. Awesome. It's going to be fun. You know, it's that, that same mindset. But with Pacific Rim had... The two thousand less screens working against it, and uh, but if you if you adjusted that, it did fairly well, and it did so terrifically in you know in uh, in in foreign markets. And the thing is, is that there were so many people that were just dead set to hate the movie before it ever came out. Yes, I think that a lot of people were like picking up on when you've got uh, lines like "We're postponing the apocalypse" and these great bravado lines, and I think. With modern audiences, they forget to have fun at the films, at the yeah. cinema, and they any attempt to do something like a like a dumb '80s action movie, like films like when you watch films like Commando right. or uh, like the Rambo movies, and especially with like Rambo two and three, not so much First Blood, 
But right. the idea that, you know, they're just popcorn action flicks. And this is the reason I love Triple X, because it knows it's a popcorn action flick. Right. And it's not trying to be anything else other than that. It's no. a, you know, it's a dumb action vehicle. Right. Um, yeah, it's, it's not trying to be Goldfinger. No, and everyone's like, oh, it's trying to outbond Bond. And it's like, no, it's taking jabs at Bond, but it's not trying to be Bond, because, right. you know, the characters do completely different. Bond's like a thug in a dinner jacket. Uh, Xander <laughs> in Triple X is, you know, the extreme sports junkie thrown into right. the situation where he has to try and pretend to be a spy, basically running off everything he's seen in Bond movies, no doubt. Um, right. Why was he getting to hang out with... Um... Asia Argento? Exactly. Um, <laughs> Dario Argento's very foxy daughter. Yes. Who I think was a revolution to uh, to many American audiences probably not familiar with her until then. So Right. But. And yeah, I mean, you know, it's like, yeah, there, there, there's been a lack of people, uh, people not really understanding what a fun movie is all about. And, uh, and then you have, I think that's coming back. Uh, people are kind of coming back around to that a little bit. You can have the important prestige picture. Uh, you can have the fun action movie again. And, and, you know, like, uh, I, I just think that American cinema and the, I should say the American cinema industry has such a bad influence on world cinema as a whole now uh, that, you know, every picture should just be dumb and uh, not even fun, just paint by the numbers. And, uh, you know, we don't care if it tanks in the United States. It'll do terrific in Slovenia, you know. And it's this, it's this really negative mindset of actually just trying to make it its basic core a good picture. You know, and I think Marvel Studios is exemplary in that regard because they are a studio that does not work. They're not a Hollywood. They're not a Hollywood studio. You know, they're not part of the Hollywood machine. And most recently, while you had people working against them, which was basically the Marvel Comics Company, the head of the Marvel Comics Company, that finally, you know, uh, the financiers had to step in and separate the two. You know, they said, you're dictating, you guys make comics and you're doing good with the comics. You can't keep changing. These guys have great ideas for these pictures. And then you're coming in and going, no, you're going to take that out of the script and you're going to put this in. And we don't like this character. You're going to do it like this. And they kept trying to, it was almost like these guys were, it it was just penis swinging Mm. and, and trying to know better than the people who actually filmmakers, which is a very common old story of the motion picture industry anywhere you go. But the fact of the matter is that they were, they were, they were separated. And so now Marvel pictures is autonomous and answers to Kevin Feig or Feige. Uh, I can't pronounce his damn name. I, I can't ever get that one. Right. I can pronounce Japanese names all day long. I can't get him. Um, I can't get a Caucasian's name. Right. Um, so, uh, uh, so you know, you know, now you have you have this this great thing that's happening with Marvel, where you know they're not going to make every picture is not going to be out of the ballpark. No, you know, and so that's just the way it goes. Not every Toho monster movie, even in their most creative cycle, during the during the uh, you know the early to mid '60s, you know, not everyone's a winner. Like Dogura is not fantastic. Dogura, the space monster, uh, Varan is not super fantastic. There, there's great qualities to each one of those pictures, but they're not all, they're not losers, but they're not 100% winners. They're not, you know, uh, Mothra versus Godzilla 64 or Mothra 61, which I think 
I think Mothra 61 is the greatest Japanese monster movie ever made. Really? Yes. Okay. And I, th- I certainly think that specifically uh, for that period of time because it's, it's the juncture between the uh, more uh, realistic-based uh, uh, monster movies where you get Godzilla and Rodan, which are very much set in reality with these fantastical things happening, uh, which basically is these prehistoric creatures coming back to life. And then the juncture between that and the more fantasy-based 60s movies where you get into, you know, uh, uh, you know uh, Mothra versus Godzilla and uh, King Kong versus Godzilla and Ghidra the Three-Headed Monster where they start taking liberties with, you know, now, now there's aliens from space, you know, coming I mean, to the Earth. Yeah, certainly within within the Shower series, and I, I would say with the Hayside as well, there was there's a strong focus on aliens being responsible for a lot of things. Um, if they can obviously attach it to a monster of some kind, and I, I don't know about yourself, but when we got on to '95 and Godzilla vs. Destroyer, mm-hmm. I remember being so crushed when they killed Godzilla. Yeah, it was uh, sad. You know, it, it, it was sad because. You know, for a lot of us, we thought that, you know, this character was going to go away for uh, a number of years, a long number of years, because at the time, you know, we were we were led to believe that there would be, you know, three pictures produced by TriStar, which would be, I think, two or th- I think two or three years apart. So, you know, that would have taken yeah. us from when did the, the first one was supposed to come out in originally they wanted to have it come out in 90 it was going to come out in 95 or 96. I think it was 96. And that, you know, that that's a whole other story in itself. But specifically to this, so we were, the mindset of Godzilla fans, at least in the United States, was that, um, and, you know, I think probably around the world, it's, it's true because Godzilla fans are more similar than not, uh, that, uh, you know, had you had 96, 98, you know, we wouldn't be seeing the possibility of, you know, uh, another Japanese Godzilla picture well into the 2000s. Yeah. You know, so um, or maybe if the American films did well, that they would, you know, keep making them. Yeah, because it was. I mean, obviously, when ninety-five marked the end of the the Japanese pictures for for the time being. I mean, obviously, we came back in nineteen ninety-nine, probably the right. greatest year for cinema for myself. Uh, we've gone to the two thousand. Um, right. I mean, obviously I obviously have to ask while on obviously the subject because you said that obviously TriStar tried to do the American version. Uh, which I remember being most memorably dismissed by one of the uh, Toho executives as being a good monster movie, but not a Godzilla movie. Um, yeah, there were there were there were there were some people that were pretty upset. Yeah, <laughs> they seem very happy with what Legendary have done did with the 2014 version oh, yeah. of Godzilla. And well, I mean, yes, yes, that's true. Yeah, I have to ask how. What are your feelings on obviously Legendary currently being the American system for? handling monster pictures at the moment because obviously they own got they own godzilla the american rights to um they've obviously got kong which they're currently developing with skull island and leading up to the uh much rumored uh godzilla versus kong not king kong just kong which we're gonna wait 2020 to see so yeah well i think they're staying away number one uh just on the fact that they're calling it kong versus godzilla even though they're what there? What was the the Kong picture that they're doing? It's just to be Kong, the King of Skull Island, or something like that. Uh, uh, I can't. I can't. I got. I got. You know. 
it's I'm old. My brain is dying. It's, you know? Yeah, uh, it's, it's Kong Skull Island. So yeah, again, this, yeah. they're just avoiding uh, King Kong, and I'm not sure because of the well, the failed '80s pictures where they tried to capture the magic of the original King Kong. And, well, part of the thing too is when the, the film goes into a catalog after its re- first release, and uh, you know that's just going to get tossed in there with all the other King Kong pictures, so it'll stand out. You know, yeah. a title where it's just Kong, but for specifically for. Uh, they're going to call it Godzilla versus Kong. I think they're going to be calling this. Yes, that's uh, uh, what the current title is. So they changes. want they they want to steer as far away as possible. Uh, even though this is universal, they want to steer you know this well, they want to steer apart as far away as possible from the title King Kong versus Godzilla uh, from the '62 picture because Universal owns the worldwide rights, uh, excluding Asia, for that film still. Yeah, uh, into perpetuity. Uh, so, you know, that also was probably a dictate from like universal, you know, Hey, you know, we have to make sure that the audience is not going to be confused in the future. (laughs) You know, people will say, Oh, well, you know, what do you mean? They're going to be confused. That's an old picture. And this is a new picture. When, when American studios or any studio protecting uh, IP intellectual property, you know, they want to uh, make sure that the branding is, is completely separate for the future. So when this picture is an old picture <laughs> that hasn't yet to come out, but when it's old, then people will not confuse it with the 1962 King Kong versus Godzilla because the titles will be significantly different. The, so if they kept it as Godzilla versus King Kong, people commonly mistake the original King Kong versus Godzilla in in different variations. They'll they'll say you know Godzilla versus King Kong yeah. for the 1962 picture. So to separate that entirely, Kong Godzilla versus Kong is 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 as different as you can get with keeping keeping it the same, <laughs> but as far as intellectual property is concerned, it's a different registered trademark. Yeah, it's and obviously with Legendary, they've obviously owned Pacific Rim as well. So right. I think that doesn't go like a week where I don't hear rumors of oh they're doing Godzilla versus Kong versus Pacific Rim, and I'm like oh my god what a clusterfuck that's going to be. Yeah, and I don't <laughs> think I don't think I don't think Del Toro wants to you know cross those streams you know because I don't think. I don't think Pacific Rim would still, the franchise, uh, as it were, would still have to be, um, you know, a, a bigger hit in the United States yeah. for them to be able to brand it that way, despite the, you know, overseas territories. Mm-hmm. I mean, you obviously mentioned uh, previously, you obviously, Mothra being one of your favorite Japanese monster movies. For myself, when I watched it, I couldn't help but think that it was very similar to Gorgo, the uh, British right. monster movie. Cause the, the plots right. were pretty much identical, where... Martha's obviously trying to get the the fairy twins back, and uh, Gora's right. obviously trying to get her infant back. Right. Um, I just felt that the two were very similar when I was. Yeah. Well, you know, it, it's it's interesting because both pictures. Uh, in fact, you know, I never really thought of this, uh, but years and years and years ago, we're talking. You know, I think sometime sometime in the early '80s, there was a, a kid. There was a kid. I, I was a kid. There was a kid I knew who uh, was fanatical. Uh, Mothra fan, and um, I had a copy of the film on on VHS, and so I promised to make a copy for him. And he had thought long and hard about this movie, <laughs> and so you know, as fans, you sit and you hash out aspects of the different movies, and and he had this thing that were kind of I don't want to say I was thunderstruck, but it was just one of those moments where uh, you know the light bulb goes off over your head, or you have that slight gentle epiphany where you just go oh i totally see that now 
yeah. which was he felt that Mothra was an inversion of King Kong. Okay. Um, so the girls are captured and brought on display, which is King Kong. Yeah. You know, so Carl Denham, you know, becomes, uh, uh, you know, uh, Clark Nelson and captures these this cr- these creatures, so to speak, uh, on an island and then bring them to civilization and put them in a show. That's King Kong. Yeah. But in Mothra, the monster comes and rescues the captive girls, the captive creature, the captive thing from the island. Yeah. So it's sort of like this weird inversion of, of, of King Kong, you know, which is also, you know, Gorgo. And, uh, and Gorgo kind of started out as a Japanese movie uh, originally. Uh, it was uh, the director, uh, uh, Eugene Lorre, uh, wanted to make a, uh, another monster picture. And originally in his autobiography, uh, they discussed doing a monster picture uh, with a Japanese studio. Uh, and this is pre-Gorgo, and um, it didn't work out, and then it eventually became Gorgo. Yeah, it's, um, I think Gorgo is one of those, those giant monster movies where it's slowly starting to get recognized now, but it, it pretty much has been been all but forgotten. And um, it's the same as the Korean attempt to do right. Godzilla, uh, Pugasari, right. um, which... I think it's got probably one of the best production histories of any of these movies. Mm-hmm. Um, the fact that we've got the, the reigning dictator of uh, North Korea kidnapping right. a director from South Korea and forcing him to make this movie, which is like a thinly veiled communist uh, propaganda movie. Right. Um, I think it's, it's an absolutely great movie, but the fact that no. we obviously got um, Kim Jong-il. Yeah. He was the executive producer. Right. Um, let alone the guy who who at one point owned the largest movie collection in the world, um, kidnapping. Uh, we got kidnapping the director. Um, right. It was uh, Shin Sangol. Yeah, I believe uh, so. And basically forced him to make this movie and teach him how to do filmmaking. It's it's uh, right. something that kind of overshadows what is essentially another yeah. great Godzilla-esque movie. Right, and it's it's it owes more to the uh, Dai Majin series than you know because it's the same kind of like a guardian. Uh, a guardian god. Uh, it's a stone idol in the Japanese picture. He's like an iron bull in 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 Pulgasari, and you know the downtrodden peasants by the oppressive you know uh, you know lords, and then he comes to avenge all the peasants. That's straight you know Daimajin, which is actually a retelling of the Golem of Prague. So you know it has this weird you know uh, uh, cultural uh, uh, appropriation. That just kind of like circles upon circles with with uh, those films, and it's interesting. I was at uh, maybe it's it's interesting to me, maybe not interesting to anybody else. I was uh, uh, visiting Toho when I lived in Tokyo in 1986, and uh, I was invited by some friends of mine uh, who I had made acquaintance uh, with uh, before I I moved to Tokyo, who did a fanzine called the Nito Shimbun which is the Nito Daily, or the Nito News, which was the name of the newspaper in Mothra, coincidentally, uh, which was a fanzine devoted to this stuff. So uh, they said, hey, uh, we were hanging out, and they said, hey, we're going to go to uh, Toho, uh, you know, on this day next week or a couple days. Uh, we're going to interview Fumio Tanaka, not to be confused with Tomio Yuki Tanaka, no relation. He produced, like, uh, some of the 70s pictures, like, uh, the, uh, the the Toho vampire pictures and and Yog, yeah, uh, Space Amoeba, 
and uh, and Teriyoshi Nakano, the special effects guy uh, from the seventies, you know, uh, helmed all the seventies pictures and beyond, and uh, Godzilla uh, nineteen eighty four. So, uh, you know, they go, we're going to interview him. You want to come along? We're going to Toho to interview him. Uh, no, I'm not going to. I don't want to go. I'm not going to that. You know, so I met them in the morning and we went to Toho and we sat down. I just let them do their interview and I just sat there going, oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God. You know, not only am I sitting in Toho, I'm sitting with these guys, you know. And at one point, you know, uh, after the interview, uh, Terry Oshinokano and, and Mr. Tan- and uh, Mr. Tanaka uh, both were asking, like, why am I here and why do you like do you like this stuff and how'd you get into this stuff? And, you know, they're kind of fascinated why, you know, uh, foreigners like their pictures, you know, these little monster movies we made, you know, years ago and whatnot. And um, uh, interesting thing that was in the office, we were in one of the meeting room, uh, one of the uh, some kind of an office that had a lot of Baroque furniture in it, it was really awesome. Um, <laughs> And uh, 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 they had a, the coming pictures Toho lineup for 1986, and it had for December of 86 had Godzilla 2, which got stalled and eventually became Biolante. But that was yeah. – they had the poster in the, in the office. This is like January, I think, of, uh, of 86. We're doing this interview. So they were still planning on making uh, the next Godzilla picture after 84 that, and releasing it that December. It was still on the slate. But anyway, so, you know, they're asking me all these questions and, and, and whatnot. And then Terry Yoshinokano proudly goes, I just got back from North Korea. And I worked on this Korean monster movie. And then he, he writes it out. He, I still have the paper to this day. He wrote the title out in Korean. Uh, forgive me for not knowing the name of the Korean characters, but uh, I like Japanese stuff. I don't know that much about Korean stuff. <laughs> That's so enough. all I know is kimchi. No, I'm just kidding. Man. That's... <laughs> No, no, listeners, I am not racist. So uh, the, uh, he wrote the name out in, in uh, Korean characters. He wrote it out in, uh, in uh, Furigana, uh, uh, Japanese, uh, and, and in English. And he explained what the movie was to me. And I was like, that was the first I'd ever heard of it. You know? And that was kind of exciting the, you know, to, to be like the first person to hear about this movie that nobody knows about to this day. <laughs> that no one remembers except for weirdos like us that, you know, but they, that was kind of cool that he go, I just got back from Korea. I worked on this big, this Korean monster movie. Yeah. And I was like, wow, when are you going to do Godzilla two? <laughs> I, like, I, I didn't care about the Korean movie. I wanted to know. About, I wanted yeah. to know about Godzilla two. Yeah. I mean, obviously Ken, uh, Ken Pichero and Satsumura, uh, it was, who was obviously Godzilla from 84 to 95. Right. He's playing Pugasaro. Right. So it's again got that Godzilla link, and I love the fact that he's quoted as well saying he preferred Pugasari to Amarex Godzilla, <laughs> despite the fact it's a it's a communist propaganda movie. Right, um, is much better than the American version yeah. of Godzilla. Well, Satsuma Satsuma wrote a book about uh, his experiences in North Korea. It's because Godzilla is seen by uh, North Korea is seen by Godzilla, is the translation. He wrote a whole book about his experiences working on that film and being in North Korea. That was published, you know, probably about 20 years ago. Um, and that, that would be something that, you know, I mean, that's, that talk about obscure, you know, but it's his personal experiences, yeah. you know, to have something like that published in English would be, you know, amazing. You know, three people would read it, but, uh, you know, it's like uh, all of Satsuma's fans as well. But, uh, but uh, the, uh, you know, he does, he does this picture and, and uh, you know, it's, it doesn't get released for years and years and years. No one, you know, no one really knows anything about it. And I don't think it ended up going to Korea. 
Uh, I mean, it didn't end up being shown in Japan for years, I think. I think it they got a limited theatrical run and just went straight to video in yeah. Japan. Um, I mean, obviously, you mentioned said that probably only three people have read this book, but there are so few books written yeah. on the subject. I mean, yourself, you obviously wrote what I could consider to be one of the essential tomes. I mean, thank you. Um, on uh, Tesoro. You know, we have, there's all the, there's still all this information that has not, you know, translated from, you know, the Japanese to, to English. And, you know, there are a lot of fans and, you know, fans generally, some fans can organize and put things together. And some fans have ambitions. Like, you know, I was a fan, you know, I still am a fan. What am I saying? I was in a past tense. I'm a fan, you know, and, and, you know, I, in, in high school, I remember doing sketches of imaginary covers of books I was one day going to write. Yeah. You know, uh, the complete guide to Japanese monster movies, you know, and <laughs> things like this, you know. And and uh, ever since seeing this uh, reprinted uh, article on Eiji Tsuburaya in the mid-70s in Famous Monsters of Filmland, you know, where it had pictures, behind-the-scene photos on the set, and, uh, and, uh, and a story about him as a person. You know, uh, that really kind of fascinated me more than the actual monsters and the pictures themselves. Yeah. Where uh, that was still, that was the realm of watching and and uh, finding out who these people were that were behind the cameras became e- equal, if not more fascinating to me. And uh, Yeah, it's, I, I mean, obviously your book is, is absolutely stunning. If you are a Godzilla fan or just a fan of Keisha Cinema, um, Tisbera's work. It, it's just a stunning book, and I'm so glad the fact that you've released it now in a soft cover. Because I originally missed out on the hardcover run, uh, which now goes for insane trader prices. Right. Um, but you've obviously re- released it, I believe, as of last year. It came back out in soft cover, and I finally, finally got my hands on a copy. It's, it is an absolutely stunning book, and obviously you cover in there not only the Godzilla movies, but things such as like Ultra Q and that series that they obviously went on sport. I mean, Ultra Crew led on Torture Man and the numerous spin-offs that, spin-offs that it's produced. And I think until, obviously, I read that, I think it was only uh, Godzilla on my mind was the other right. only Godzilla book out there, really. So um, is there any plans to sort of follow up with another book at all? Or well, I've it's got... such a labor of... Right. Labor to actually write a book, so... Well, you know, it was it was an interesting experience doing this book in the, in the Reader's Digest version for that, uh, which is uh, which is uh, we were developing a different a uh, different book um, and uh, with Chronicle and Subaraya Productions in Japan, and um, they basically came to us and said, "Well, you know, you know, we want you to write this book." Um, Subaraya and, and Chronicle had been talking. They had worked on a previous book together called So Crazy Japanese Toys. Um, and uh, Chronicle wanted to have pictures from the actual shows or movies that the toys were based on. And uh, in doing that, they uh, interacted with Subaraya Productions uh, and said, hey, you know, you guys do the Ultraman stuff. We should do something together, you know. So it originally started out as being a book about the Ultraman franchise. And um, <clears throat> while they were doing clearances and all that, um, Chronicle Books queried to Subaraya, uh, do you have a writer that can do this? Uh, because, you know, we should start early because uh, if we have to take a Japanese writer and then translate it and go back and forth, that's going to take a lot to be a longer process. And then uh, the uh, 
people at Subaraya Productions said, well, we have a guy in San Francisco that can write it. And uh, I had, you know, had done work for Subaraya Productions in the early 90s uh, using things that I've written uh, as part of their brochures and, and, and helping to write some of their uh, synopses for different shows and, and, and for catalogs. And uh, so they recommended me. They said nobody knows more about A.G. Subaraya than this guy. Yeah. When they eventually uh, decided it was going to be a Subaraya book, uh, they said you have nine – it was like nine or ten months before everything had to be turned in. So they said you have ten months, go. <laughs> so you know they were working on photo acquisition. Subaraya and, and, uh, was working on photo acquisition and, uh, and soliciting other things for the book while I was just you know pounding the keyboard. Uh, you know, for that, for those months and, and trying and trying to wrap my head around, uh, their request for a 50,000 word, uh, manuscript, which is beyond anything I'd ever written in one, in one narrative structure. And, uh, you know, we pulled it all together and, uh, and, uh, it was kind of an amazing process because I would have, I would have loved, it wasn't like I had this manuscript sitting around and then I, you know, tried to shop it around for years. Yeah. You know, it was sort of they came to me and said, go now, start writing. You know, so I had to do uh, – I didn't have a research assistant. Uh, the only person I could bounce things off of were uh, uh, one of the guys at Subaraya Productions, this guy named Brad Warner, uh, who no longer is with the company. And um, so anytime I wrote a passage in the book about, you know, Subaraya did this or he saw this, you know, they would come back to me and go, where did, he, where did you get that from? You know, they would either go, where did you get that from? Or I ran it by the family and they said, yes, that happened. Yeah. So there was this very factual process that, that happened. There were Japanese books written about Subaraya that I was drawing from. But, you know, uh, the perfect situation, the book came out great. I have no regrets about the book whatsoever. It's Subaraya 101. That's exactly what Chronicle Books wanted. Uh, at at the, the early parts of the manuscript, I was writing extensive footnotes on special effects processes yeah, you know, the Shuftan process and, and, and whatnot. And uh, and they went up. Oh, first thing that's going, all the technical stuff's going. You know, this is think of this. That's what they told me. Exactly. Think of this as you're writing an introduction to Su- A.G. Subaraya 101. This is what we want. Yeah. You know, we don't want how they film this scene and they use the dry ice with this thing. We don't. That's the, just going to be a book full of facts. We want to get to the heart of his story and uh, we want you to write about the man. So, you know, the only complaints I've ever gotten about my book uh, that I'm aware of, uh, you know, people going, well, you didn't tell us how he made these, this, this effect or how they created this other, you know, this, this scene in this one movie. Um, and that's exactly what I was writing originally. And that's exactly what Chronicle was tossing out, you know, and going like we want, you know, this, this one-on-one. And I think... You know, it really resonated with a lot of people uh, the way the book came out because it was far more accessible uh, to a wider audience of people who maybe are very casual about these pictures and, uh, and would pick it up and be able to enjoy reading about the history and learn a lot. But at the same time, where a, a, a quote-unquote jaded Western fan can still pick it up. And, and, and I've been told uh, that you know, people learned stuff they didn't know about. Obviously, and that's what I was, you know, I was also trying to add as much uh, material that had never been before published in English, which is not hard to do if you do your work. <laughs> you know, if you if you really if you're not regurgitating what the last English writer wrote about the subject, you know, well, which I'm, is which is limited, you know. Well, 
I have to say, you kind of live in the dream of all those Godzilla fans. I mean, you started off obviously on Creature Features, and now essentially through Shout Factory, you've taken on Bob Wilkins' role. Um, obviously, hosting their their movie marathons, you did the, obviously the Gamera, the Gamera, and the Godzilla Fest, and most uh, most recently the Super Sentai right. uh, six episode selection. Um, all of which have been uh, absolutely fantastic. So it's, I mean, is the plans to do more hosting like that through Shout Factory or? Yes, we're going to be doing more. And uh, I really can't say too much at this juncture, but uh, I'm working on one right now. So I'm, I'm working on the, uh, the script, and the script will be delivered uh, on the 4th or the 5th of this coming month of April. That's great. I'm looking forward to obviously uh, seeing, seeing what comes next, even if you obviously can't tell us what's coming up. Yeah, but, uh, I, really, I would really like to, but you know, like Shout likes to keep a lot of this stuff not secret and it's it has nothing to do with like secrecy it's all about to them we're going to be working on some other stuff they've been uh what we've done so far has been popular and uh, successful and uh you know we have a few more planned that's all i can really kind of say there's going to be you know a couple more uh this year and uh hopefully that's what the, the the that's what the plan is at this point and uh we're gonna see where that goes and it's it's kind of really cool because uh you know, um, uh, I do a lot better hosting than I do talking freestyle because you know, like, <laughs> my mind goes all over the place. You know, when I'm, you write a script and you're reading your script, you know, uh, you know, you're really, really focused. I tend to if I had to host that thing freestyle, I don't think what I could do what Bob Wilkins did, frankly. Just- Bob Wilkins would come on this show and like some horror hosts would have like gags that they had worked out previously. Sometimes these guys were, you know, radio guys or disc jockeys. They were already comedians. Some guys could just talk all day and stay focused, you know, just right off the top of their head. And that's what Bob Wilkins did, you know. And my experience working on on his show and 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 going on the set and 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 sitting there going, you know, we'd film the bit that I would be in and then um you know, he would go, well, you know, I'll walk you out if you're ready to go. And I go, well, how long or much or longer are you going to be shooting today? Oh, we got a couple more hours. Can I stick around and watch? I won't get in the way. Yeah. And he go, I don't know why you want to, but you can if you want. And so I would. And I was just fascinated by every moment. And, and, and you know, I got a better appreciation of for what he did. Because in those days, a lot of people didn't know what went into television. And all of his bits would be, you know, pre-filmed. They would uh, be, you know, uh shot on video and then uh when the movie was broadcast uh the show would be broadcast it would include you know the recorded bits and the movie were seamlessly edited together live you know with commercials so you had someone at the station running the movie and running the video for the show all the bits uh with bob and then all the commercials and all that so and um and just watching him uh, just do this thing freestyle. He rarely did an, a, a retake of anything. And um, yeah, sometimes he'd stumble over a word or so. But I mean, this was in those days, this is going to be on TV one time and you're never going to see it again. And, uh, you know, and ironically, a lot of the tapes uh, from his show, which, you know, he was on the air in the San Francisco market on Creature Features for about uh, eight years. And uh, that's just because he was like, I'm kind of tired of doing this. <laughs> and he, he had started in 1966 in, in, in Northern California and then it was so popular that they brought him to the San Francisco market. And he continued doing a show in two different cities, our market in San Francisco and then in Sacramento, the state's capital. 
Um, you know, and he did that until like 1980. And then he did the kids show, Captain Cosmic show, uh, for about four years. I think it was three years. And, uh, you know, he just got, he just got kind of tired of it. He was, you know, sort of been doing this thing for more than, uh, you know, more than 15 years. (laughs) I'm going to, I'm going to move on. He went back to his advertising agency that he started, but just watching his, his, you know, a lot. What my point was that a lot of the tapes had, you know, uh, have, have were recycled, like sort of what the BBC did with a lot of Doctor Who and, oh, and other and other shows. So you know, we were we were you know we're by uh, the Federal Communications uh, Commission. You have to keep TV shows uh, that were recorded, uh, you know, uh, like local shows, even for yeah. I think it's like seven years or something like that. So in case there was a complaint about that show, they can pull it out. You know, I would like to complain to the BBC. You know. Uh, you know, pulling out the old Python bit. Uh, and, uh, and so when he left the station, he just grabbed like a armful of tapes and some of the 16 millimeter stuff that they shot remotely. And he left all the rest behind, you know, he just kept stuff for his own, you know, memoirs, you know, his own, his own memorabilia. And so, you know, we're lucky to still have any of this, but that still exists, but watching him just, you know, just freestyle it basically, uh, was was pretty amazing to watch his wit, and nothing was written, nothing was teleprompted. You know, um, he interviewed <clears throat> when he would interview people. He would he would sit there and go, "Okay, so we're going to talk about this, and we're going to talk about that," which most hosts do, uh, and um, you know, any kind of television host. You know, we're basically going to cover this and cover that and cover this. Is there anything you need? Any information you need to impart? We'll point that up. You know, and and so on, and we'll go from there. And he would just, you know, reassure someone, "Oh, this is gonna be fine." And he had this one guy on. He had one time a comedian, filmmaker, uh, local local base guy uh, named Ernie Fasalius, who's famous for doing Hardware Wars, the first Star Wars parody fan film, um, so to speak. Not really a fan film, but a parody film, uh, satirical. Everybody's seen Hardware Wars, right? So, um, have you seen Hardware Wars? It's been a while because this okay. is obviously back in the days of tape trading right. when I saw it. So, right, it's, I, I, it's I, all over. It's all over the YouTubes. The young kids are all watching it today. <laughs> oh, they they got it on the YouTubes and the, the Facebooks and the things like that. You know, they've only just recently rediscovered George Lucas in love. A lot of these kids. Yeah, yeah. That's well. Yeah, that's that's the nature of what the age we're living in. You know. Yeah. And, you know, uh, so Ernie Vesalius is on, on is going to be interviewed on Creature Features and talk about Hardware Wars. It was just coming out. And uh, they had he had had the discussion and said, OK, and he brought all these Ernie Vesalius made all these mock props like the soundtrack album and the and the, and the board game and, and all these, this, you know, things like this, a track. And and uh, and they and he said, I, I want to do these bits. And, and Bob and him talked about what they were going to do. And then as they're doing the countdown, Bob turns to Ernie Vesalius and goes, you know what? Scrap all that. Just wing it. Just follow my lead. And in his head, Ernie Fasalia said he panicked, you know, and, and, and Bob just eased him through it. And he goes, the bit came out, their whole interview segment came out way better than it would have, that it was so pre-planned, you know, but uh, he, he what is he doing? They're going five, four, where did you, don't worry about it. We're, we're going to wing it. We're not going to do any of that stuff. <laughs> Two, one, you're on, you know, and, um, that's a testament to how, you know, a, you know, great uh, host Bob was. And he was just this this person that can't be, you know, imitated. So, you know, trying to do these these things with Shout Factory is like filling very, very big uh, uh, wingtip shoes. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, you know, I hope that, uh, 
you know, I hope I could be fun and informative and I hope uh, that people like it. And, uh, you know, I hope we can do more because it's just it's more fun than it's more fun to actually do it than and try to get uh, affirmation from other people. Yeah. You know, uh, it's just it's just really a blast doing them. You oh, know? It's... So. The, the the marathons that run through Shout Factory uh, so much fun, especially because it's very screwed up sort of times, especially in the UK, um, right? Side of things, and you just like because we obviously can't get the stream, so you have to sort of like stack your tapes up and right. play them it's sort of in sync with what's going through Shout Factory, right? Um, unless you know some way to get around it, I guess would be the other way. But yeah, I was there with all right. my tapes, and it was just nice on the message board, just like speaking with other Godzilla fans and other Gamera fans especially right. and having that input because being a Gamera fan or like just a fan of these movies over here it kind of is a lonesome profession because there's not right. a huge amount of us over here unless right. you know a club or right. people so it's right. uh, been great obviously being able to speak with other sort of fans and, and have that back and forth and hear people like you know spitball ideas as, as you hit particular scenes or someone coming out with like a little bit so it's been really great in that and obviously i'm excited to see what uh, you obviously do with shout factory next and thanks you know and i think that you know with uh, in terms of like you know fans overseas uh, no matter where you are what country you are it's it's a, it's kind of amazing that a lot of english-speaking fans and even where english is a second language like german fans or french fans you know will will sometimes seemingly gravitate towards uh you know, uh, American uh, online groups or, or message boards. Yeah. Uh, and and it, I know that there's a German, uh, there's sort of a, a little bit of a cohesive German fandom. Um, I don't know how, how big it is really, but I know that they, you know, they do, there's a zine and there's, uh, you know, a message board. And uh, they like all kinds of crazy old school monster movies, but they, you know, the emphasis is Japanese monster movies. Um but I'm really surprised that there's not more a cohesive uh, legion of fans that are interacting with each other in the UK. Yeah. Again, I think it's just purely due to distribution and the fact that we only got so many titles over here on VHS. And Right. Even with the release of the recent uh, Godzilla movie, that there was no label over here that saw so fit to sort of pick up anything other than like the original right. Godzilla movie. Right. Uh, which obviously got its status and well, it's a right. place within the sort of key movies of cinema history. Right. Um, but they never chose to like pick them up. I mean, it would have been really great if some label could have like picked up these right. titles. Um, well, you know, every, every, uh, right. You know, it's like, I think BFI also did the Mysterians. Uh, and, yes. uh, right. And this, they did just those two films, which is amazing that they even, pick the Mysterians, uh, which is great. I don't doubt why they picked it, but I'm just saying it's just great that they got it. Um, you know, the, 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 the funny thing is, is that every once in a while I'll hear from someone in the UK that will um, say that they're trying to license the films and they're going to put out, like they want to put out a box set or they're going to do a series of DVD releases and, um, and then, it, then, then, then nothing happens. Yeah. You know, they kind of like disappear and maybe a year later, you know, I'll go, oh, the guy contacted me a year ago. You know, maybe I should send him an email. And, you know, I sent him another email. What's going on? Well, we're still working on it, you know. And part of the problem isn't so much that uh, there – it only takes one group, you know, or one, you know, one group of people that want to start a label 
are a group of people at a label that want to put this stuff out. And then you have the monolith that is Toho that, uh, you know, wants, has so many demands over the material. And I think one time, um, no, this is back in the, back in the nineties, uh, early nineties, I was contacted by Criterion from the Criterion collection people. And at that time they were, uh, negotiating. This is about 1993. They were negotiating, um, with Toho to do a deluxe Criterion Collection Laserdisc of the original Godzilla. Oh, nice. And uh, they wanted me to be involved. Yeah. And, um, you know, uh, a lot of the discussion was about uh, how difficult <laughs> Toho is to work with. And so if Toho's listening, hey, man, uh, you know, we're just talking the truth, man. We're just, we're just keeping it real. Yeah. Keeping it 100%. Um, Toho actually, uh, they said it was more, it was far easier to secure the rights and get a, a release approved of a Kurosawa film than it was a Godzilla film, I which is proof strange. of the pudding because Criterion's put out, you know, an entire catalog of, of Kurosawa pictures, but they've only put out one Godzilla film and it took them, what, 20 years yeah, yeah, yeah. To, to get to, to facilitate that eventual, you know, release that they did. And they said just Toho was just like, you know, anytime you'd start talking about Godzilla, they just go, oh, no, 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 no. And they have, they have basically entrenched themselves and, you know, they have this, this worldwide intellectual property uh, that's a big, you know, a big IP. But they do so much to sabotage keeping that IP alive in people's minds in the meantime. Yeah. Like even in Japan. We were talking about, you know, the difficulty in, in the UK of, you know, catching these movies maybe late night. And in the United States, back in back when I was growing up in the 70s and 80s, you know, you could you could turn on the TV and go, oh, look, Daimajin is on or, you know, yeah. Godzilla, Godzilla versus the thing is on, you know, uh, and they were just, you know, they were on TV all the time on different channels. You know, we had a lot to pick from in Japan. None of these films were on television. You know, so fans in Japan are jealous of American fans. You know, uh, the, the the fans that are between in the age groups of like, you know, uh, like, you know, 40 to 50 in, in their 40s and 50s. You know, they were jealous, you know, about the fact that Americans got to see this stuff on TV all the time and they got nothing. Yeah. And like Tokyo was like no go. Like it was it was like during the whole negotiation for for television programming in in, in the late 50s in Japan. Uh the studios originally sold packages of films to the Japanese networks. And then someone at the studio went, television is the same story all over the world. Television is below filmmaking. It's, so all, yeah. so all, the, all the five studios, you know, that's Toho, Shochiku, Nikatsu, uh, Dae, and Toei, they pulled all of their films from the Japanese television networks and said, you can't show them. You could go to Japan. When I lived there in the 80s, I saw more American and European films on television than any Japanese films. I had to go to revival theaters to see Japanese pictures. They weren't on television. And, and, and in Tokyo, nothing. But, you know, if you went to outlying areas, you know, maybe you would get something. Like there was, I think, a station in uh, Shizuoka Prefecture, which is down on the Izu Peninsula, which ties in with Destroy All Monsters, because that's where the Kelax set up their underground base. Uh, <laughs> but anyway, so, um, you know, out in Shizuoka, I had some friends there, and um, they would do these late-night uh, programs. Occasionally, there would be a film on uh, uh, a late-night, 
you know, and it wouldn't be, you know, letterboxed. It would, you know, just cropped, what we call pan and scan. Yeah. You know, and uh, uh, they would, I think I caught the Mysterians once. You know, that was the only Toho movie I ever saw on TV living in Japan. Was <laughs> it's and in, in, yeah, in Shizuoka City, in Shizuoka Prefecture. Yeah. At like 11 o'clock at night. I don't know what day of the week it was, but it was like the Mysterians, you know, it's like, you know, they just didn't get a lot of that stuff on television, you know, uh, over there. You, you know, you could go and rent a, a lot of stuff on, on, on VHS yeah. and they even had the, the cool thing that they did. I always wanted to do this when I went to, when I was in Japan for the first time, I saw this thing at a video shop, a video rental shop. They had these chairs set up and they were sort of like these, these lounge chairs that were, you know, manufactured to have this whole unit with a table with a television on it and a, and a VCR. And uh, then they had headphones and the headrests. Okay. And speakers and the headrests. And um, you could rent a movie and watch it in the shop. That's... In, this, in, this, in a comfy chair. Yeah, it doesn't... So oh, a friend I... of mine and I... A friend of mine and I actually did that. One of my one of my Japanese friends over there, yeah. who I met in college over here, you know, we watched like Submersion of Japan. You know, it just, it just came out on VHS, so we watched like Submersion, oh, like two and a half hours of Submersion of Japan in a video store, sitting in these chairs. You know, like, um, but uh, uh, they were kind of these couple chairs where they had the TV monitor between the two chairs. All right. Um. Uh. In in the middle of the two chairs, rather. But uh, you know, you otherwise, you know, they had they had video shops with cubicles like little karaoke cubicles where you could rent a movie and sit there and watch it like how people used to listen to records and record shops where you get the private booth to play records and then decide which one you were going to buy you know it's they had viewing booths you know yeah. but you know they, the stuff wasn't on tv so you know uh american fans who grew up in the you know uh the 80s a lot of stuff disappeared off of television but at the same time that as television was changing in the United States and everything was going to cable and cable networks were buying up packages of films. And so local stations no longer had them to show, which is now loosened up and, and has changed again. Uh, you know, uh, the, all these films went to home video in America on VHS. So, you know, so if you, a lot of fans who grew up in the, in the late eighties, They'd say, you know, I became a Godzilla fan because my mom took me to the video store and I picked out Godzilla versus Monster Zero. Or, you know, then you have me who, this stuff was on TV all the time. It was, they were assaulting you. I should sue the nation of Japan for, for making me poor by assaulting me with their propaganda of giant monster movies. Yeah. And, and uh, it was basically, you know, uh, subjected me to a clockwork orange, you know, getting the, my eyeballs peeled open and I'm forced to watch, subjected to watch Japanese monster movies for 24 hours a day. Yeah. And, uh, and, you know, and then you have the people who in the 90s, the American fans who, you know, were catching all these things like uh, Monster Vision on TNT, where they brought back the stuff, the cable television networks were, were showing festivals of the Godzilla pictures. So, well, again, I mean, that was all being spearheaded by the likes of Joe Bob Briggs, another right. hero right. alongside the likes of uh, Kim Newman and Mark Mode, these guys, especially when you look at Kim Newman, Kim Newman, I would, while he's more sort of like, the 60s, 70s horror um, aspects and stuff. He certainly has played his own part the same way as Joe Bob Briggs did in maintaining the history of these these sort of cult films. And right. um, him in part especially was responsible for a lot of things like the CTM Monster Vision and that. So right. um, it's, it's, it's quite the mantle that you've now essentially picked up over at Shout Factory. So uh, yeah. 
I, well, we'll see where we can take it, you know. And I'd like, I'd also like to drop that, you know. There's been like one of one of a uh, figures behind the scenes promoting Godzilla and, and Japanese monsters in the UK uh, was Tony Luke, who uh, had done work with uh, with the BBC, and he was uh, one of the writers and uh, and 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 producers, uh, if I remember correctly, on the uh, BBC Godzilla special from 1998. Uh, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm just trying to remember. Obviously, we've 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 obviously the BBC's involvement of anything Godzilla because I remember that they used to do nights where you'd have like right. like Kung Fu night or Eighties right. night, and they had right. um, a, a Japanese monster night. Right. And it was the first time I saw Godzilla versus King Ghidorah. Uh, they right. showed it was really bizarre because they showed Godzilla versus King Ghidorah, the 1980s version of um, King Kong. Right. Um, and I've trying to remember which I remember they showed another one but they had these little interludes where they would play fight scenes from uh, okay. kaiju movies but right. it would be set up in like this Japanese gambling den where okay. you would have have it it was kind of like that scene in uh, The Exiles Hell Money where you have all these Japanese uh, gamblers around and they'd right. gather around this holographic dome and they would show like <laughs> show like Gamera um, right. battle someone and they had like Ibra right. versus uh, Godzilla and right you would have like these these celebrity pundits. I think you had like Jonathan Ross's brother there for right. some random reason. I guess he was there offered a sandwich or something. To be right. There. And he was like, they were like giving the serious commentary of like these Godzilla right. movies. I'm watching it and thinking, I'm a Godzilla fan, but I don't take it that seriously. Right. So um, yeah, it's, it's well, it's you definitely bizarre. you definitely have people like you know Jeff Ross who's who's done uh, who's made an industry, you know, out of promoting you know weird Japanese stuff, you know. And has and, and, and as the Japanese would say, you know, he has a very deep uh, fanaticism. For I remember one of one of his shows. I think it was Japanorama. One of the segments he dressed up as a character from a Tokusatsu show called Robot Detective, which was the trench coat and the cap, you know. And it was like, oh my god, <laughs> that's deep. That's what the Japanese call deep. That means you're really, 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 you know, an otaku so to speak, with that. Uh, but this guy, Tony Luke, you know, contacted me to work on this BBC documentary. Have you ever seen the documentary on Godzilla? Uh, I don't believe I've seen the one on Godzilla. I know that okay. John, Jonathan Ross did a, a trilogy of documentaries. He did that for, did did, uh, did Japan, uh, right. Japan, Hong Kong, and Korea. Right, um, right. And I believe he did another one. He did, I think he was, did uh, Japan Armor as well, but I never... Right saw it it was never right. advertised so it kind of well you know you me. can you can you can look this up on um they have it uh several people have it on on youtube uh, okay. so you can look this thing up it was a bbc documentary called godzilla king of the monsters it was it came out in 1998 and uh i was contacted by tony luke who recently passed away which is why i'm mentioning him really uh for a long battle with uh cancer and uh he became very well acquainted with uh, he was the first foreigner to actually have a manga published in Japanese, uh, one of his efforts, and working with a lot of uh, very famous um, uh, designers and artists in Japan, hardcore uh, Godzilla kaiju uh, fan, and uh, he had contacted me because he had written some of, uh, read some of the stuff that I had written, and asked me to be a part of this BBC special as a you know they were using my work as a research template. And um, said that they had gotten nowhere, again, bringing a subject up, they had gotten nowhere with Toho 
in terms of interview subjects. And they're coming to Toho, the mighty Beeb. And they're going, we're the BBC, sort of like you're NHK, and we want to do a Godzilla documentary, and it's going to be shown in the UK, and it's going to bring much attention to these movies, and we want to interview the actors and the filmmakers. And Toho said, no, no. They said they were getting the runaround. Long story short, Tony Luke goes, what can you do? Do you, do, you know, do you have any ideas? I said, well, let me pull out my little black book. So they had contacted uh, some other people. Uh, they got, they got uh, I pulled out my little black book. And I gave them a bunch of my contacts. I, uh, and uh, I said, do you, would you like Akira Kubo's uh, phone number <laughs> and, and address? You know, um, for example, it, was, it wasn't exactly like that, but I, they interviewed uh, Fukuda, Honda's wife, uh, Satsuma, Nakajima, Yoshio Suchia, played the controller of Planet X, etc., etc. They interviewed uh, Noriaki Yuasa, who directed the early Gamera films. They just interviewed this cavalcade of people, you know, and Tony Luke always thanked me for helping them because they were getting nowhere. Yeah, yeah. You know? And, um, and uh, it was, uh, he, he was just, just a delightful, uh, great person. We became, we became friends and remained friends. Uh, for years, and uh, you know, I, I think he was—he was a guy that also was trying to sell the BBC. One story he told me, uh, he was trying to sell the BBC on 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 uh, buying uh, Ultra Q. Yeah, it, it, I don't think it ever happened. I don't ever remember. Ultra oh, it, Q. no, no, it, yeah, it didn't happen. He told me the whole thing. He goes, he tried to sell him on it, and the BBC was like, "Well, it's an old black and white show from Japan. Nobody knows what it is." At the time, Subaraya Productions. This is still like the I think the late nineties. Uh, maybe early 2000s, and, and, and Subaraya Productions was uh, was uh, attempting to colorize the show so they could sell it to other markets that hadn't seen it. And um, eventually they did get it, the series colorized uh, for a Blu-ray release in Japan and a possible overseas sales. And that's still, that still hasn't happened as far as like overseas television sales. But Tony Luke was sitting there, you know, with the Beeb going, and they went back and forth. He goes, it was, the ball was in play for several years, and you know, eventually nothing happened. But, you know, he was trying to push the BBC to buy Japanese monster uh, programming and, and, and screen programming. And, and, and it was really, you know, he said it was a very frustrating experience being a, you know, a UK fan, you know. Um, but, uh, yeah, he just recently passed away. And, uh, and you know, he was championing a lot of stuff. I think a lot of people should, a lot more people should know who Tony Luke was, you know, and what he, and what he did. For you know, uh, fans in the UK, because they did a really spectacular job on that uh, on that documentary, which also had like Alex Cox, the director, who was yes. a huge Godzilla nerd. So he was one of the main interview subjects. A couple other jokers like myself. It's funny. Um, I, mean, I think it was. It's funny I think it was my uh, Alex yeah. Cox though, because obviously Alex Cox is uh, his own cult film series, Movie Drome, okay. um, yeah. here on the BBC, which exposed another a whole generation really to a lot of films that they would have not otherwise seen so things like terminator and diva um, right. these films that we now take for granted but before then no one was really sort of given them the exposure that he obviously gave through movie drone and uh right it became this big cool thing but um yeah i, I, I would have to certainly hunt down that documentary now so yeah it's available on youtube i think tony himself he did a he did a, a upgraded version of it he tried to boost you know the because it's you know it's it's 
was it was it was made in in 1998 so it's it's sd it's not hd but he did his best attempt to to hd it in its entirety a couple of people have posted it in bits you know in in i think 10 pieces or something like that yes. and it's it's not it's not that long i think it's about 45 to 48 minutes long but it you know to me i didn't remember it being that short i thought it was much longer not because it was boring <laughs> but because they had jammed so much into that 48 minutes you know and uh you know you have like these great interviews with a lot of japanese actors who are gone now and, and filmmakers that are they're gone now you know um and uh so it's it's really a nice time capsule and there was nothing like it even made in the states you know uh at that time yeah. you know and a lot of people like i said there's been some recent more recent uh kind of documentary type films made by you know, people on Kickstarter, or, you know, uh, trying to do uh, a, a Godzilla type documentary, but none to the extent of what the BBC was able to pull off, even though a chunk of it had to be devoted to the uh, Emmerich film yeah. because it was coming out at the time. So there's interviews with Emmerich and, and Devlin, but they compromise a very small part, actually, of of the entire documentary. So um, it's it's really nice. I mean... I'm surprised that they, you know, I mean, I'm in it, and uh, Stuart Galbraith, the fourth, who's another writer, uh, historian, is in it. And, uh, you know, with the amount of the Japanese they actually had access to, you know, they should have just cut us out entirely because, you know, it's just, you've got Akira Kubo, you know, I mean, my God, you know, he's only made one one appearance, uh, a formal appearance or uh, outside of Japan. Yeah. And, uh, you know, he's his health is not that good anymore. So it's it's not going to happen. You know, we we had him here in San Francisco in 2004 for the 50th anniversary. And, um, you know, that was an amazing experience to, uh, you know, to be able to uh, show him, bring him to the States. And he had his first American hamburger, which he got really <laughs> choked up about. Uh, he didn't choke on the hamburger. Oh, he, got he, he was emotionally choked up later about it. Yeah. But, um, you know, it was just really great to, uh, you know, we had him and we had, uh, you know, when he was the star of Son of Godzilla and Destroy All Monsters and Matango, etc. We had uh, Gorath. We had, uh, you know, Hiroshi Koizumi from Mothra and uh, Godzilla Raids Again and, and Ghidra the Three-Headed Monster and Godzilla vs. the Thing. And, and we had uh, Stomu Kitagawa, who was uh, the Godzilla actor who took over with Godzilla 2000. Uh, and, you know, he came from, you know, being trained by, you know, Sonny Chiba's Japan Action Club and was in a lot of tokusatsu TV shows in the in the 70s. And uh, and we had Ed Keen, who was an American living in Japan that was uh, an actor wrangler for Westerners and Japanese movies and appeared in a bunch of them himself. Uh, himself and he played the mayor of Newkirk City in Mothra. So, you know, we had him in there. Uh, we also uh, we had him. We had Jerry Ito, of course. Uh, who was the villain in Mothra, and he was the detective in The Manster, which was a Japanese film shot in, in Japan. And, uh, you know, we had all these great people, and it was just uh, this, it was great because, uh, you know, uh, Mr. Koizumi and Mr. Koizumi and Mr. Ito have both since passed away. And it was the first time that they had got to meet each other in 20 years because uh, the Ito, uh, the Itos moved to LA because uh, Jerry was. Uh, uh, had this malady that uh, uh, they were just uh, that needed uh, cutting edge uh, medical research uh, that was only available in America. Yeah. So they had moved to Los and resettled in Los Angeles. So 
they had been away for a very long time. But it was it was great bringing all these people together because uh, um, they hadn't seen each other in a long time. But Kubo, it was really great to you know be able to sit down and have a meal, several meals with Kubo, and you know and tell him like you know when I was a kid you were my hero. You know, yeah. you know seeing you on these movies and TV shows, you were like you know you were like a part of our lives. You were a hero. And, just want to let you know that outside of Japan, people feel this way about you, you know, uh, and uh, that's kind of a rare experience that, you know, uh, not many people get to have and, and they probably should, you know, these guys, uh, you know, uh, are starting to get that attention. But I think some of it's come too late and it took, you know, some American fans to put together these conventions where the actors come and the fans that really have demonstratively expressed their love for these people which in Japan, these if they ever appear at any kind of an event in the past, there's no real, there's no conventions like they have in the United States or in the UK, and uh, uh, it's starting to change over there. But you know, you didn't have, you didn't haul out Nakajima to do an autograph session. You know, you would they would be kept these reverent figures where uh, only if you worked for a magazine, you know, could you call him up and dare to interview him. You know. And if and a lot of these guys said, well, if anybody in Japan invited us to come to a show and sign autographs and hang out with bands, we would we would love to have done that. But it's it kind of took the Americans. And I'm not making Americans the American fans. Somebody had to do it. Somebody started bringing them to shows in the states, like the G Fest convention in in Chicago. Uh, and uh, then they would tell these they t- they would tell everybody back home, you know. So now there are these like one day big toy events. That's kind of like the big thing. You know, and then they'll have Nakajima come out and sign autographs for the day and they do a little talk show, you know, like a half hour talk show or whatever. And they get a kick out of that. But, you know, they're now they're able to interact with the fans and even uh, the actor Bon Daisuke, who played the uh, hero in the TV show from 1972, Kikaida, said that even in Japan, when they do uh, fan meetings and and fan gatherings, um, Japanese fans are very reserved and they don't let their emotions out. And then he did a lot of events in the last, uh, since 2002 in Hawaii with the revival of the Kikaida series being so popular there, uh, that the American fans in contrast, uh, especially Hawaiian fans were, were very, very demo- super demonstrative and, 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 uh, and expressed themselves in a way that the, the Japanese were a little more, uh, fans were a little quiet and kind of timid. Where the American fans are like, "Hey, want to come over to my house and have barbecue?" It always you know? is the way. Um, if you watch like wrestling, especially the Japanese fans are very quiet and stoic, and they respond to the big move, the big payoffs. Um, right. Whereas American fans, especially British fans, because we recently had um, had one of the NXTs hosted over in London, and the British fans are normally a lot more yeah. drunk than the American fans are fine. <laughs> they're also very loud, and this is where the American why the wrestling companies love coming over here because they get such a huge response. But obviously in Japan, right. it's very stoic and it's, they, the audiences like to sit there very respectfully um, right. and not just shouting obscenities and God knows what else at the wrestlers. So right. I find it's very right. much the same within their fan culture that they always have that sort of very respectful sort of stance when it comes to dealing with uh, the idols. And it, it's, it's kind of gratifying to them because they never got that, you know, they never got that adulation from Japanese fans even when the films were new, you know. So it, it's kind of exciting uh, for them. And, uh, and uh, that's why they, they're so agreeable to do these, uh, you know, these events overseas in the States and, and wherever they're, they're, they're taken. Uh, they're just very excited to meet these, you know, these fans that are just showering so much love on them, you know. 
Well, from the I mean, we've covered a lot on this episode. I mean, it's going to be a weighty chunk of our, an episode, and I, I certainly no, enjoyed having I, you on. Thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure, uh, obviously, having you come on and uh, getting to geek out with another fellow Godzilla fan and Keiju fan. Awesome. So, yeah, uh, it, was, it was fantastic. You know, you know, just cut about half of what I say. It's, it doesn't matter. Um, <laughs> I was just rambling a lot, so just, you know, you could junk probably half of what I said. That's fine. Um, <laughs> I mean, if people obviously want to find and follow your, your stuff on the uh, Facebook or Twitter or, or your blog, where's the uh, best place to come and find you? Well, uh, I'm on, on Facebook under my actual name. No fake names. Is <laughs> uh, August Ragoni, which is A-U-G-U-S-T, just like the month. Yep. And last name is R-A-G-O-N-E. Uh, I also have a blog that I update when I feel like it. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, which is uh, The Good, The Bad, and Godzilla, which you could either find it under that or find it under my name. But it's The Good, The Bad, and Godzilla. And uh, I hang out on Twitter sometimes, you know, when I'm drunk. And uh, <laughs> no, I, I don't get drunk on Twitter. Never, <laughs> never, never, tr- never drink and tweet. Oh no, it's not a good idea. Angry at the BBC. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, you just turn into, uh, you know, you just turn into, a, you know, a disaster. It'll be like, uh, you know, be just, just, a, just bad, just bad. It's not good. You know, you don't want to be like the Hoff in his in his low points. No, guess you know. <laughs> You know, from Star Crash to crying on television on, on YouTube, you know, it's like the hassle, the hassle of Hasselhoff. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, yeah. So that's where you can kind of find me. And uh, yeah, you can harass me. I don't know. Okay. Well, again, thank you, uh, August, for uh, coming on. It's been an absolute pleasure. Um, this, of course, wraps up another edition of the Mad Bad Diamond Strange Showcase. This is uh, Edward Jones reminding you, as always, to uh, keep it strange. If you do want to obviously follow us in the meantime, you can do via Twitter, which is at Edward underscore Jones. Uh, we're also on the Facebook under From the Depths DVD Hell, and my blog, of course, is From the Depths DVD Hell. Uh, thank you, everyone, for listening. Thank you again to my guest, August Ragone, for joining us. Thank and, you. Uh, allowing us to geek out as I mentioned already it's been an absolute pleasure having you on and hopefully we can uh, get you back on again to uh, to talk about these films some more cool next time I won't be on meds <laughs> <laughs> um, but thanks again for listening just uh, kidding <laughs> thanks for listening everyone